Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls Part 11 dun 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 dun, of A Feast for Crows. Yes, we are very, very close to the end, as you can see. We have today, we have next week, and that is the end of A Feast for Crows. So thank you for joining us for this critical, critical part of the rereading of this book. This is, of course, the sister podcast, the companion podcast to History of Westeros's Valoridus project, which I know you're all involved with and listening to every Sunday on the live streams or after, of course. I am speaking to you from a very muggy, cloudy other faces slash England. The thunderstorms, they are coming. We've had a hot, hot weekend, so you know I've got that solar energy stored up. But yes, the thunderbolts are coming, perhaps timely at the end of this book, maybe. We have our usual four chapters today. Two of our regular POVs, two not so regular, those ones we'll be saying goodbye to, so it's a nice little mix for you today. I'll get to those in a second before we really get going. Very quick notes for you. Firstly, of course, a thank you to our wonderful patrons whose generosity and support and general friendship keep this aisle a ticking. So thank you so, so much as always. I would like to shout out particularly Lord Commander Namian Darklin, KM, Archmaster June, the Healer of Lesser Poxes, and Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse. And while we're here, as you know, those shout-outs are depending on what level of patron you are. But I'd actually like to give just a quick shout-out to some of us who are of a lower level but have really been around for a long, long time and have really given a lot in terms of generosity and support, of course, for a long time. So just very quickly, also an additional shout-out today to Chloe, to A&A, and to Virginie. Apologies, my pronunciation, of course. Now, you might have realised, being the addicts that you are for my Twitter timeline, that I took a little bit of a break this week, a little bit of a hiatus from tweeting, and that's because I had the hard old task of turning 30 last week, yes. And, well, I just wanted to say thank you, not that they're listening, but thank you to my friends and family, and especially Lady Buckley, my lovely wife. Lots of nerdy presents you'll be glad to hear. I'm sure I will be tweeting about them or mentioning them on here. For instance, uh, there's going to be a little video, a little bonus video, and bear in mind, if you think I'm bad at audio editing, video I have even less experience with. But still, a little video of a little Winterfell model that I was given. So look out for that in the future. But yes, lots of nerdy things to discuss. And, and yes, I'm still around, even in this new decade, to bother you all with nerdy notes about these books and other things. So just a thank you to them. But what about today? What are we getting on with? Let's talk about these chapters we've got going. Because of course, like I say, this is... Just one more before the end. So really, we're at the end of the book for several, for half of our characters today. So the importance of such can't be understated, can it? We'll start with Jamie 6. That's the River Run episode, the Blackfish episode, or the Blackfish chapter, I should say. So you know, I'm in love with that one. Very important. We move on to Cersei 9, the last of her really being free in King's Landing. And, well, she just goes for broke, really. I think she knows everything's going wrong. So why not go even more crazy while we're here? We move on then to The Princess in the Tower slash Ariane 2. One of my favourites. I love Ariane. I love this chapter. We are imprisoned in the Sunspear. We get a lovely look at Sunspear. And then, of course, the incredible, important meeting with Duran Martel. And we've learned not of the past only, but the future as well. And secrets and justice and fire and blood. So you know we're coming to that. Then we'll finish with the longest chapter in A Feast for Crows. Yes, true. Also, A Song of Ice and Fire apart from Crescent, obviously. It is Elaine 2 slash Sansa 3. We say goodbye to the Eerie. We say goodbye to Peter Baelish. Oh, hey! And goodbye to Sansa. Oh, not so good. So lots to get through. I expect a long episode. I will not delay any further. Thank you again to patrons. Thank you again to you guys. Let's get a rolling. We will begin with Jamie 6. 
so as I've just said. Riverrun, The Blackfish, Edmure, it's Tully time, you know I love it, it's good to be back here. Well, it's not the happiest of times to be at Riverrun, I'll admit, but still, I just like being here. And before we even get going, I want to point out, in the Jamie and Cersei chapters, that again we have back-to-back, of course, there is a difference of only 20 words in their word count. So, twins right until the end for Jamie and Cersei, it would seem. So what is this chapter overall? Okay, we know where we are, we know who we're dealing with, but what's actually happening? It's Jamie trying to do things the right way, and finding, unfortunately, the world doesn't want to work with him because of his past. Which is fair, I would say. So, he has to resort instead to Jenna's advice from his last chapter, I'm sure you remember, of summoning his inner Tywin. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, which side you're on, he does get a victory at the very end, a landmark step in the progression of the Riverlands and his new career as a commander and leader, but it's obviously not as clean and glorious as he would like it to be. It's a different path, but it does get the results, so it depends how you how you want to view that one. Now we dive in straight at the beginning with the re-meeting of Brynden Blackfish Tully, a favourite of many and certainly of mine. That's big in itself. We haven't seen him since Rob and Catelyn departed this very castle on that rainy day that was the beginning of the end in very many ways. Blackfish himself has been here the whole time and is likely suffering greatly even if he doesn't let on because he's not that kind of guy. He had already lost his brother so recently after getting back in touch and getting back together with him. Then he had to hear more news that his most beloved niece and her son, his king, whom he had grown very close to, had been brutally slaughtered. Also, his nephew, his other nephew, captured in the proceedings as well, with thousands upon thousands of his own men and allies, lords he grew up with and fought beside, also being killed. The very cause that he left the Eyrie and Lysa for, the great cause of his beloved home that he did so much to advance himself, was just snuffed out and he wasn't even allowed to be a part of it. That's the stinger. He had to read it all in a letter, I assume. His sword still sheathed. For a veteran warrior like Brynden, there is no greater pain. It's a solid guess that he would have liked nothing more than to ride out at that very moment, straight for the twins to get his sword bloody with vengeance. Two things would have stopped him, I would say. There must always be a Stark in Winterfell. It's treated as a unique sentiment, but really, any family would feel the same of their ancestral home. Brynden is the last Tully, essentially. He would not be in a rush to abandon the castle he and his family loved so much. But more powerful than that is the oath he swore to Rob before their parting, to protect these lands, and more importantly, protect Jane Westerling, his queen. So that's what Brynden has been doing ever since. He likely knew the moment he read that letter that this would be the last thing he did, that the other Riverlanders would have to fall and the Lannisters slash Freys would eventually come for him and Jane. He likely made his piece of that in the same instance. Fine, let them come, but they won't find it easy, and we might just take a few of them with us. So far, he's doing pretty well in that regard. Yes, he he has put the small folk out, as we've discussed on a previous uh, episode, so I won't rehash that for you here. But for overall mission objective of keeping Riverrun, he's still on top for now. But let's get back to framing it in the context of our actual POV and Jamie, because this is an important meeting for him, both in the immediate tactical sense of getting Riverrun, but also because of his past. It's the meeting of your hero, someone you've admired and tried to emulate since you were a boy. We already know that from his past memories of coming to Riverrun. Instead of just the usual finding out your heroes aren't as good as promised, Jamie finds out his outright hates him. It's not a surprise, but it still stings. It's tough for Jamie. Someone he admires holds up a mirror and points out all the things he already thought about himself, whether that is fair or unfair. But he has to slog through the barbs to get this siege sorted, even if this particular meeting is hopeless from the start. Whatever happens, it's a meeting of two once great knights, two adversaries. Don't forget, Brynden largely designed the trap that got Jamie captured in the first place back in the Whispering Wood, and two major characters meeting. This 
feels important universally. This is a big moment in our story. So we know we really have to appreciate it. And as Jamie notes, Brynden sets the immediate tone. Kingslayer, said Tully. Blackfish, he responded. So right from the off, we are dealing with reputation and allegiance rather than the men themselves. The, this is going to be your side versus my side. There's no real respect going on here. Brynden opts for hard sarcasm from the off, which is not a cloak we've really seen him wear before. He uses it to immediately bring up the oath that Jamie swore to Catelyn, already a major theme in Jamie's head, while also pointedly stating that Jamie has not returned with the girls. Catelyn is dead, and yet Jamie stands free. So he's an oathbreaker as a Kingslayer already, and it sure looks like he forgot what he swore to Catelyn the moment he walked out the door. I had no hand in Lady Catelyn's death, he might have said, and her daughters were gone before I reached King's Landing. So Jamie does have a defence he can muster, and he speaks the truth about Catelyn, as we know. But as it always has with Jamie slash Lannisters in general, they just can't stand being judged. So he'd rather put hackles up than seem to be begging. He's not going to come on his knees and say, oh, I'm sorry I didn't do this, and it's because of this, this happened, the bloody mum has got me, etc. He's not going to do that. It's just not going to happen. It also makes sense for Brynden to hate Jamie so. Even if we disregard the broken O's and the fact that Jamie has sullied the name of good knights everywhere, which is obviously very important to Brynden. Even forgetting all of that, Jamie is the representation of the other side. It's not like Brynden gets to have a conversation with Walter Frey or Tywin Lannister. While Brynden knows there are many to blame, only one is stood in front of him. And he was the enemy in the early part of the war that captured Admiral and besieged Riverrun in the first place. He was the one who escaped, he was the one who came back. I don't think there's any conceivable way Brynden could know what Bruce Bolton said to Rob before he killed him, but it all fits on the same line, that, hey, this is the person I'm going to blame. The easy solution here would obviously be to tell Brynden why he broke his oaths and was named a Kingslayer in the first place. At least, you could see, you could make the argument that Jamie should say that to get Brynden on side a bit more, but I think we're living in a bit of a fantasy land if we think that's actually an option for him. First and foremost, Absolutely no one believed him anyway, we've discussed this before. A king was intending to blow up his own capital with hordes of a near-magical substance that you have to see to believe, and you kept it quiet for nearly two decades, and no one can actually verify that. Hmm. And it just so happens to clear you of this crime that so many hold you in contempt for, the crime that your life is based on. Yeah, not going to happen. No one's believing you, especially not the blackfish. But even if, let's say he was, let's say there was a chance of being believed, Jamie still cannot bring himself to talk about that. Just because we know so much about it doesn't mean everyone else does, we have to remember. He hardly brings it up internally and definitely not externally. He's only really managed that with Brienne, that's part of their very special connection. It is still so corrosive to him to talk about it out loud, or even, again, in his mind. And in front of his childhood hero, whom he clearly still respects on some level, and doesn't want to annoy if he can, that's the last person he'd want to discuss it with. So he opts for silence instead. He's got a lifetime of experience doing that. Besides, he thinks he will forever be viewed this way as the Kingslayer. We've got that all the way through this book and in Storm as well. No matter what he does, it's not going to change, so he's not going to try. He won't give them the satisfaction. Much as they might never admit it, outside perception is huge for the psyche of all the Lannister children. We've seen that with Tyrion for a long, 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 long time. We've seen it with Jaime now. And yes, it's definitely with Cersei as well. So Jamie tries to shift around talk of the past and O's in particular. He wants to deal with the here and now because it's slightly less painful than all the other stuff. But Brynden is not one for manners. He talks straightforward, he continues to mock, and he challenges Jamie straight on. We discussed last week that he has already probably given up on Edmure possibly surviving, and that's confirmed for us here, as well as the fact that Reitman's entire ploy with the, for the noose and everything else was ridiculously stupid and obviously not going to work. Jamie does indeed offer generous terms, as he says, but there's simply no negotiating to be done 
when there's as little trust as there is. You do not lack for gold, Kingslayer. Bargaining with oathbreakers is like building on quicksand. Famous line, we all remember that one. Yes, there is the matter of oaths giving Brynden a definite bias here, but whatever Jamie says is useless to Brynden because he just figures Jamie will go back on it straight away anyway. I think Jamie is being genuine in his offers. He really does want to avoid breaking his promise to Catelyn in terms of taking up arms against the Tullys. That comes up a lot in this passage. But I wouldn't have been surprised if his allies in the phrase would have wanted to go back on the deals and keep their own prisoners while dishonouring Brynden. We know they're keen to do that anyway. We see that later in the chapter. The whole time, he has to fend off Brynden's attempt at provocation as well. It's very possible Brynden really is trying to provoke Jamie so he can at least have his last glory. The situation, as stubborn as he might be, does look pretty dire from all angles at this point. We know he's bored by this siege, and after months of being stuck inside, Brynden would probably really like to take on Jamie specifically as the target. He's not only a betrayer of the knightly vows, but the face that caused so much damage to his favourite niece. Jamie can represent everything for what's gone wrong with the Riverlands campaign, really. So why not choose him as your last shout, last fight? But Jamie doesn't react, at least not immediately, to Brynden's provoking. So I guess that shows his his growth because younger Jamie, even Jamie we saw in Game of Thrones, probably just draws his sword straight there and then on the first word Brynden says. Instead, he again shuns any talks of Ares and insists on the question of the day being asked and answered. Brynden refuses the exchange offer of captives because of his keeping to his oaths to Rob, which he believes Jamie is obviously not, not doing. But then again, I don't think he would accept any offer whatsoever that costs him honouring that last request from Rob. Jamie could probably offer Tommen, and Brynden might still say no, Tommen for Jane. So Jamie continues trying to push the fair terms agenda, the sparing of lives, etc, etc. But again, Brynden is convinced that anyone spared would wind up dead by a Lannister or Frey blade in a few days anyway. There is just no breaking through his bias here. There's no breaking through the Kingslayer curse, basically. You say Kinslayer? I think there's a Kingslayer one as well. Brynden doesn't want to be paraded through King's Landing, he mentions that. Which is ironic, because that's what actually Jamie has in mind for Beric, not Brynden. Although Cersei probably would enjoy that kind of thing no matter who it was Jamie brought back, which is ironic given what we know is in her future. It's nearly funny to us that Brynden could think Tywin was somehow in league with Jon up at the Wall, with him becoming Lord Commander. That's the next point that gets up here when Jamie mentions the Wall. To us, who have seen the true events across the whole country, it's hilarious, but it does go to show how information can quickly become corrupted in this kind of society, how prejudiced it's very hard to defeat, and how people will normally suspect if something vaguely fits, it must essentially be true. We can see Brynden basically filling in his own gaps here, can't we? And we'll talk more of that idea of Brynden and the other rivermen going to the wall a bit later on when Jamie is talking to Edmure. For now, here's another quote. If you will not yield the castle, I must storm it. Hundreds will die. Hundreds of mine. Thousands of yours. So that's evidence of our earlier discussed philosophy. Take as many as possible as you can. That's the biggest victory he can hope for now. And faced with that kind of resolution, Jamie has to admit this is not going well at all. He switches to pointing out the overall, that there is nothing else to fight for. But Brynden again twists that to point out the moral crimes of both the Freys and Lannister. So Jamie tries the siege angle, instantly admitting to himself that's a lie as well, and Brynden does have them beat there, as discussed in Jamie's last chapter. Brynden knows it, and he seriously doubts the Frey's inclination to share food, which we also mentioned. He knows he has actually got time on his side, and Jamie doesn't have a foot to stand on in that regard. We know how well Riverrun is positioned for a siege, and Blackfish has added extra time with his tactics of expelling the small folk. Again, I know we don't like that. But we also know much of this uh, this characteristic of Riverrun from the Castles book, but I do like to hear the logistics about it. At this point, Brynden probably has resigned to his fate. We've already said Brynden probably knows 
he's on the out here. This is all going to end when they finally do come over the walls. But you have to think, he never even entertained the idea of escape until Edmure returned. There's no way he would have abandoned his men, his home, or his dead king's command. This is just, I know this is coming, so let's make it as difficult as possible for me. So Jamie tries for probably his final tactic. He suggests setting this between two champions, one from his side, one from the Blackfishers. And that's another tactic that ever clever Brynden has already guessed. He opts for the fight being between himself and Jamie right there and then, like we said a minute ago. There would have been a time a few years ago, or maybe more than a few now, where the two of them would have been close enough to their respective peaks to make that one hell of a duel that we really would have liked to see. But the days of such dreams have long gone by, and unfortunately, Jamie is once again accused of not being trustworthy enough to uphold the rules. And this one probably hurts Jamie more than all the rest. Duels and single combat are sacred rights to knights or even just soldiers. The idea of not adhering to them properly really is a deep cut. And to put salt in the wound, Brynden goes back to his provoking, this time implying Jamie is a coward while also pointing a light on his hand. When Jamie does indeed offer to fight if Brynden will release him from this tully oath, even that cannot tempt the blackfish into trusting him, even to give Brynden what he's already asked for. You always disappoint Kingslayer. That's rough for Jamie to hear on multiple levels. He's heard it for his whole life as a man, as a lover, as a brother, as a son, and as a father, most definitely. But the one that hurts most probably is as a knight, coming from a childhood hero. It really does make its weight known here. So, unfortunately, the parlay is basically a failure in every way, with a bunch of personal insults thrown in for good measure. Brynden wheels back inside, and it's over. Jamie has to ride back to camp with no result, and with everyone knowing he came to no result. And this is also, unfortunately, the last we'll physically see of Brynden Blackfish Tully. Huh. It was a very brief re-meeting there. For a character who had such an effect on the early war, and who dominates so much of our discussion of the future Riverlands, go back and check that Radio Westjoss livestream I did of them about the prologue, even in that there was a lot of Brynden talk, it's a big departure. We'll focus on that a bit more in Jamie's next chapter next week, when we actually discover that he has gone from our pages, but still, farewell Brynden. As he rides back to his camp, Jamie's mood obviously darkens. His hero despises him. Bloodshed has not been avoided. He's not come through in the clutch and is now no different to Ryman Frey, basically. And he's going to have to break that oath to Catelyn Stark, much as he might loathe it. One more broken vow to the Kingslayer, that's what he says, and I think that really sums up his mood. You can see the immediate difference in his dealings with Little Lou and the others. We've talked a lot through this uh, second half of his arc about him getting on with his squires and basically everyone in camp. Now he comes back very moody and not so polite, and it's pretty obvious why that is. So we come to the middle of this three-act chapter, the War Council. Jamie has had so many different experiences of late that go beyond being the best one of a sword. We've talked about them a lot. He's become a leader, a thinker. That's been building all through Storm and definitely through Feast, but this is still a new experience in leading a War Council. A War Council made up of multiple parties, all with different targets and ideas, with half of them wanting to kill the other half, with no clear path to physical or political victory. Supposedly, he would have had many war councils back when he had his own army in the original Invasion of the Riverlands, but back then, it would have been easy. They had the numbers, war was still new and fresh and exciting. Everyone he commanded was sworn to his family and on the same side, and they still had Tywin to consider if they really wanted to get argumentative. And the aim was just really, really simple. Let's go, let's get Riverrun, job done, we'll go home. Unfortunately, this is not the same situation. Riverlords versus Freys are the main problem here, although Freys versus Lannister isn't without its charm, as we find at the opening with bickering between Davin and Edwin. And Davin's right, 
The Freys can't even send their number one because he's too drunk. We'll come back to Ryman a bit later. The Riverlords are fairly fine doing what they're told in public, but now in this war council, there's no holding back the obvious disdain, and disdain's probably too kind a word, they have for the treacherous Freys, a subject that comes up over and over again with the Pipers or Lord Clement here. The Freys are basically lower than low on the respect chain, and Jamie has almost zero chance of making these parties work together and it's probably lucky that he goes as far as he does with this lot. From the off, we've got half a dozen people suggesting different strategies for dealing with Riverrun slash Brynden, no two the same. Of course, the phrase are the ones to suggest the most dishonourable of routes. Before long, it dissolves into arguments about the Red Wedding and the terribleness of the phrase rather than the siege. They get completely off course. Now we're getting threats and people storming out, and Jamie realising he is not running this council at all. The respect attached to his name, that he wants to be there, clearly isn't. He needs a big win and quickly or he's just going to lose this whole camp and this whole campaign. I do enjoy how the Riverlords are constantly defending or promoting the Blackfish while not, whilst not being too outright about it. They at least know how to be a little subtle but it's clearly there. Alice lends a little bit more to the loyalty of the Blackfish and to Riverrun in general, just the Tullys. Now Jamie is quick to point out the treachery originates from the phrase regarding the Red Wedding. The phrase they accuse the Riverlords of being treacherous then, well, we know how two-sided that is, don't we? And Jamie and us, we all, we enjoy the look on Edwin's face when Jamie says that. It looks like both Jamie and Catelyn can claim to have slapped him. Jamie is not fond of the phrase either, and this farce of a council is the last straw for him. If they want to not show up for work, if they want to push and push against Riverlords, already put to the edge worrying about their family members, he's going to treat them like the children they are. No more public support, no more public respect. He's in damn charge now. So let's have a look at what that will look like. In the first instance, it's the command for attacking at first light, but we know there is more to come. That might be enough to buy him a bit of time, but what he's actually going to do is put an end to this ridiculous Edmure Gallo situation, although he does do it with a bit of dramatic flair by taking in pain out of him. And note that when we get there, when we finally get up to these horrible gallows and find Edmure, we re-meet Edmure as well as Brynden in this chapter, Edmure greets Jamie the exact same way his uncle did, Kingslayer. So Jamie's walked up, up to these gallows, he's walked through the whole camp, people have seen him, he's ignored him, he's clearly on a mission, he's got ill and pain with him. Hmm. People might be getting an idea of what's going on here, especially when he actually walks up to the gallows with Edmure. So Ryman Frey, he suddenly decides he does want to be involved, and finally appears half drunk and with a half nude friend. On all our anger, collectively, goes way, way up when we see what he has done with Rob's crown. Hmm. So it's an amazing moment of relief, when Ryman insists on running his full mouth and plonks himself right next to Red Ronick Connington for people who've been smacked by Golden Hand. Ryman is dismissed back to the twins. For all of his air talk, Jamie is now very keen to show the phrase that they are still subjects, not partners, and will do as they're told. And best of all, Jamie takes back Rob's crown. Or, at least, he gives the command to. Hmm. He says that apparently he doesn't go through it because, as we know from later on, which we'll be discussing next week, the Brotherhood Without Banners actually ends up with Rob's crown after taking off Ryman Frey when they attack and kill him later. So Jamie has the inclination, but doesn't get there, doesn't follow through. So that's pretty interesting, that one. Again, we'll return to that next week. So we have Ryman leaving with his own little band. And like we say, we know that this is going to be his doom, thanks to Stoneheart and the Brotherhood. So that's something for us to relish, given his past. And re-readers know exactly how that comes about, with the presence of Tom Seven Strings, which we will again talk about in a second. And it really is something for us to enjoy because we hate Ryman. This one is for Daisy Mormont. Yay, Daisy. 
Jamie also notes how much Edwin hates its father, so it is entirely possible someone will go to blame him for Ryman's death at some point in the future, maybe. The thinking on Edwin goes well in hand as we have a much better look at Walder Rivers this time in this chapter as well. So we get a look at the next, well, <laughs> next generation of phrase. There's so many generations that phrase seems kind of redundant. But these next two have definitely moved up a little bit thanks to this rhyme and death that's upcoming. Critically, this is where Jamie makes the command that all the captives held at the Twins are to be transported back to King's Landing. Again, very much discussed in that Radio Westeros uh, livestream I was on. This is a huge move. It obviously massively depowers the Freys and their leverage on the rest of the Riverlands, and they're not going to be happy about it at all. Whereas it puts the power back where the Lannisters want it at King's Landing. Is it a good decision by Jamie? Morally, yes. He's disgusted by this family, clearly. And I think he feels the Riverlords at least deserve to not have the Freys control their family members, and some might even deserve to be released. Tactically, hmm, maybe. Well, yes, it does give the Lannisters more power, but also leaves the phrase much more open to rebellion by the Riverlords. Technically, it should still have the same effect. If they attack the phrase, their relatives will still be killed in King's Landing, but still, it's just a little different. I think the main thing is, Jamie just doesn't want people as horrible as this to have any power because they're too stupid and cruel to have such a responsibility. Just look at Edmure here. That's a prime example of what they've done to him. This opens up huge responsibilities for what might happen to those characters, as it being transported, and I won't go over that now because, like I say, discuss that at length with Lady Gwyn and Yoke Boy, and the possibilities that this might open the real Red Wedding 2.0 that the Riverland seems destined for at some point. After just a little wait to keep on our toes, George reveals that Edmure has actually been cut down instead of killed. Originally, he just says that Edmure raises his sword and cuts, and doesn't actually tell us what he cuts. Turns out it was the rope, not Edmure's neck, and he is now brought to Jamie's own tent to be bathed while bringing in Ryman's singer as well. We know how important that is. On the way, we get the slightest of notes about poor Rosalind and what happened on the night of the Red Wedding, and Edmure simply being amazed that Jamie didn't have him killed. Obviously, it's something he's dwelt on a lot lately, but I did want to point out that Rosalind note because, well, she doesn't get enough sympathy for what is done to her, basically, by her own family in this little situation. We did talk about it back in Storm, but still, heart goes out to Rosalind Frey. In the tent, as much as they are enemies, Jamie clearly wants to treat this man with some damn respect for once. Is it because he feels he owes Catelyn? Eh, maybe. Because he hates the phrase and wants to be the opposite to them? More than likely. I will say, the way George writes Edmure here is brilliant. Not only is he clearly a broken man in terms of what's happened to him and his family, but the pure detest he has for Jamie is written so brilliantly here. If we thought Brynden was bad, the loathing is oozing out of Edmure's pores. But Jamie, again, isn't here to make friends. He's had enough of people. He's tried with the Blackfish, he got harshly rebuked. He tried to run the council and keep everyone happy. The phrase disrespected him and messed the whole thing up. The Riverlords hate him even when he's trying to be on their side. His aunt doesn't think he's up to the job. He can't catch his uncle. And the damn love of his life has been sleeping with Osmond and Lancel and bloody Moonboy for all he knows. So fine, let's just get down to brass tacks here then. He starts with generous terms again, to be fair shrewdly knowing what we highlighted earlier, that this is all the Blackfish has. But Edmure is younger, there's still living to be done, so he might be a little bit more receptive. These turns might actually mean something this time around. The small folk can stay with Emmon. That's a good start because we know Edmure does care about the small folk. And they don't care who rules them anyway, right? That's the idea. They probably do care a bit more of phrase, but still. Now more interestingly, the garrison and the Blackfish will be allowed to go to the wall, as was hinted at earlier. 
Nah, isn't that an intriguing concept? Firstly, their sheer number would be a huge, huge boost to John up at the wall when he's so desperate for men. A whole garrison coming up to join the, the Night's Watch. Now, I can't remember off the top of my head, and it probably is mentioned somewhere how big that garrison would be, but I don't think John's going to turn it down, whatever it is. It's clearly a substantial number. And you can only imagine how useful Brynden would be as a ranger. He'd be basically perfect. There's not many men who'd be better at that position. And then you have to consider the disdain that Brynden has for John, thanks to Catelyn, like he mentioned earlier. And do we really think a force of this size would be allowed to get all the way up through the neck and in a still very much divided north, a north basically at war, to actually get to the wall? It seems pretty doubtful. I don't think the neutrality is going to hold in the current north, is it? Still, it really is great to imagine. Where better for a man named Blackfish to serve than the Night's Watch? It's huge, huge alas alarms. Even Edmure is offered the choice to go up north, and he'd be pretty damn useful too. I think I will be dreaming forevermore about Brynden being First Ranger, etc. If not the wall, Jamie allows that Edmure and Roslyn will be treated with respect at Castley Rock, and their child found a place at court, whatever its gender. Considering how Edmure began his day, it's a pretty well damn offer, isn't it? Edmure raised his hands from the tub and watched the water run between his fingers. It's the tiniest of notes, but it's one I appreciate. Edmure has watched the water flow through Riverrun a thousand times over, and clearly that's what he's picturing here, I think. Because he can't help but wonder what the alternative is. Saving lives? Great. Comfort instead of a noose? Great. But this is his family home. This is his castle now. He is the lord of Riverrun like his father before him. Does he want to be the one to hand it over after 300 years of family history? Riverrun has only ever known the Tullys. This isn't a place to switch hands every other century. He's fought for his place. He fought for his small folk. And it's not just surrendering it. It's surrendering it to the people who butchered his family at our wedding. His sister, his nephew, his king, a good deal of his friends, a lot of them, all while using him as a pawn. Like Brynden earlier, he wasn't given the chance to fight for them either, to die with them. So sweet as the offer might be, it's still the wrong offer. It still ends with his family home being taken away. It's still a loss. Offered by a man with no honour who already beat him in a battle once before. So he has to ask, what if I don't accept? And now Jamie lets himself go dark. Must you make me say the words? That's what he thinks, and he thought the very same thing at the start of the chapter. So now we get to see how much Jenna's comments from this last chapter had an effect on him. He's almost overcompensating. Think I'm not like Tywin? Alright, watch this. Jenna knows what she's doing in this regard, obviously. It's definitely worked. We know Jamie is no Tywin, but he does do his best impression. And the council is still quite under the surface, but it doesn't work at all. Hence his quick decision to go over the top with Edmure here. He uses that frustration from Cersei and the Freys and everyone else. And most of all, he just tries to get the job done. That's still his end goal here. He's not just being cruel for the sake of being cruel. He is still trying to rule, even if it's not all glamour and golden hands. If Edmure refuses, he says, it will be battle. A battle where Edmure's own friends that he grew up with, his own bannermen, will be sent in first to take the brunt of the defences. The phrase will go next, which surely Edmure will not mind, but neither will Jamie. He and his own Westerman won't come until the third wave, when the Tullys are all but done. All of him will be killed, he says. All these men and women who have served Edmure his entire life, who he is supposed to protect, and again, we know he takes those vows seriously. And this home that he loves so much. Jamie will have it torn down until there is no evidence it ever stood at all. All evidence of Tully's existence will be gone. But even that is not enough. Jamie wants to make his mark. He wants no one to ever doubt his rule. He might not have his sword hand, so he needs to make his cuts a different way. In front of Pyre and his squires and Tom Seven Strings, he tells Edmure that before the castle comes down, he will send his newborn child to him by trebuchet. Hmm. 
Wow. Just to really make sure that message sinks in, Jamie has the singer, Tom of Sessons, like we said, begin the reigns of Castamere. Yes, this really is an attempt to be Tywin, isn't it? To rule through a tight grip. It's sobering, but also, in fairness, devastatingly effective. He does actually save lives by acting this way. He doesn't have to go to battle. And it doesn't have to take up his arms against the Tullys, like, like we said earlier. It's a gamble. It's a confident one. Persuasiveness of sending over the River Lords first, etc. is brilliant. It is really well put together, so we shouldn't ignore that aspect of it. There's also the difference between threatening Edmure publicly and privately. Jamie clearly wants the notoriety because he believes it will help him in the future and makes him more like Tywin, which he's just been told he should be. Don't forget, he's also recently found out some very major harsh truths about the love of his life, so emotions are high for him right now. He's willing to just take that extra swing. He could have kept this between him and Edmure and achieved the same result, which would unknowingly actually better his position with Stoneheart later, but you get his line of thinking. He's not to know that, obviously. Besides, keeping it quiet would likely feel more shameful for Jamie. If he's going to do it, he should be doing it loud and proud in his mind. Edmure, to Venice's chapter, screams about the choice of Tom Seven Strings. Most of this we attribute to Tom's floppy fish song that's dogged Edmure for so long. That might be true, but I think some of his reaction is because he knows Jamie is trapped in. He's going to have to give up the castle and everything he ever loved, and he hates it. So ends the chapter. Technically, left on a cliffhanger, we don't see Edmure's answer, but I think we can all guess what he's going to do. And this ending is where the complexity on Jamie really comes in. Let's just say Edmure really had gone stubborn and refused. Jamie would have had to go through with his, with his threat, he'd have no choice. Every part of his threat. He says himself just a few pages earlier, do not make threats you aren't prepared to carry out. That is the whole point of the Edmure Ryman noose scene. When Jamie makes this threat, he does so intending to go through with it if needs be. He wouldn't say it otherwise. Clearly, these are not the acts of a good, noble hero. This is not Brienne. She would never even think of such a thing. But that's what makes Jamie's arc so good. It's not a straight line from villain to angel. It's not even straight redemption, as many people like to call it. He's better, by far. Yes, we all agree. He's putting every effort into learning and thinking and improving, but it's not so simple. There are bad, evil qualities, too. The shadow of Tywin still looms. Or perhaps you look at it a different way and say, hey, he has just saved a bunch of lives. Okay, true. But you are missing a big part of the equation. I just really like that subtle uh, foundation of the don't make threats unless you're willing to carry out. So when he says this to Edmure, he is admitting to himself that that's how far he's willing to go. He's saying, okay, I will actually send a child, a baby, with a trebuchet if needs be. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said it. Regardless, we can save the, the consequences of this, both intended and otherwise, for Jamie's next and final chapter. Though this is a chapter of consequences that might go far beyond one mere chapter, especially with that certain singer in camp to hear all of this and get it back to his allies. I know we're looking forward to the end of Jamie's arc. That is coming next week. Let's move on into our second chapter. It's another back-to-back -back for Jamie and Cersei and another... Uh, one but last chapter so let's get to it. it is Cersei 9 so in the chapter before Cersei loses everything well she loses it here as well we go to full-on cackling eye-twitching plans now complete with some loot face smashing for good measure at least she's getting involved on the ground level for once I think even Cersei on some level realizes she has lost the core even if she can't imagine what is coming in the sept in her next chapter Hence why she's really going for broke here today. There's forced confessions, tortured confessions, a new hand, giving herself to another cattle black. It's the fourth quarter for Cersei, and she knows she needs to make a grab 
or lose everything. There's no time for composure or forward thinking today, as if there ever was. Yes, this is, well, it's just getting worse for Cersei, even if she can't really realise it. I think I've said that in perhaps every Cersei chapter, definitely the last three or four, but it's really building up here as we come to the end of this quite magnificent arc, I think we'll all agree. Let's dive straight in. We talk about Cersei's relationships in this book as Cersei Jaime, Cersei Tommen, Cersei the Tyrells, etc. One we don't talk about enough is Cersei Pycelle, probably her most consistent interaction in the whole book besides maybe Taina. It's her historical connection too, one we always believed was genuine back in Game of Thrones. And on Pycelle's side, he's been involved with House Lannister for what seems like a hundred years. In this book, it's basically been the same conversation over and over again between them two. Pycelle either trying to talk some actual sense into Cersei, or just blinking incredulously at her choices, with Cersei responding that he is an idiot more often than not. And that all comes to a head at the opening of this chapter here. Our first sign that this chapter is about the status quo not being enough anymore. If she really didn't like him, Cersei could have got rid of Pycelle at any point she wanted. But she's kept him around, until now, when she finally threatens him with the Black Cells. Again, it's fourth quarter time, we've got to swing for those fences. So with the possibility of adding another ingredient to her frame Marjorie plan, there's nothing that Cersei won't do, apparently. Before she broaches that subject, we first have to deal with the long-awaited death of Giles Rosby. A sure sign of bad times if he's survived everything until this. It would be a big enough issue that another master of coin has now left the position at a time when there are so many financial problems plaguing the crown, whether Cersei wants to admit it or not. And finding someone that can pull them out of that hole would be an incredible help, though of course, Cersei would be more worried about another Tyrell coming to town just when she's got Marjorie on her own. But all of that is forgotten for the moment when Cersei decides to accuse the man who stood by her family for years of murdering the late Master of Coin. Huh? Huh? Yeah, exactly. Pycelle is far from squeaky clean, but you do still have to feel for him a bit here. For his many faults, he has actually had the city and Cersei in mind for the duration of the book, at least publicly, and he's definitely supported her father in the past. He's worked with numerous insults and a huge lack of respect, only for him to be accused of murder and betrayal, an extra barb for someone who is supposed to basically be the realm's top doctor, although there is irony in that given what he did to John Aaron, so don't feel too bad for him. As for this betrayal business, even if we ignore the part about Giles Rosby, it's an interesting debate. Pycelle, quietly, argues that he's been to see and obey Marjorie because she is the wife of the king. That makes her the queen, doesn't it? He's sworn to obey her to at least some level. Cersei obviously scoffs at such a notion, ignoring the fact that not so long ago, she was only the wife of a king. Yet we can bet all the dollars she was demanding obedience back then as well. Yet again, Pycelle's got to blink. The specific accusation doesn't even make any sense. Why would Marjorie be ordering Pycelle to kill Giles Rosby? Are they really that bothered about Garth getting the job? I think Cersei thinks about that far more than any of the Tyrells do. But of course, that's Cersei's point. She doesn't require grounded facts because she doesn't care about Giles Rosby. Marjorie is her target, and she goes off the rail enough at Pycelle, she can push him into her plan. My loyalty has always been to the crown. To the realm. To, to House Lannister. In that order, Cersei thought. Yes, Cersei, in that order, that's how it's supposed to work. It just doesn't mean great news for you. Anyway, regardless of that, her plan does work. Pycelle does crack under the pressure. He admits, publicly in front of others, which is crucial, that he has been in league with Marjorie, but only under his oaths as a healer. He has been supplying the Queen with moon tea. And why would a woman whose husband is only eight years old have need of moon tea? So the first snare of Cersei's is a success. She has the evidence of a man, supposedly removed from loyalty of any house, basically accusing Marjorie of infidelity and therefore treason. Now this is a complicated 
part of this plot. Is Pycelle lying here? If Marjorie is what Cersei had been painting her as, or even as a lesser version, it seems nigh impossible she would ever go to Pycelle for moon tea. The Tyrells know where his loyalties historically lie, even if he doesn't get on with Cersei now. Marjorie came to this city with a huge following of other women, and not one of them knows how to brew moon tea? Hmm. Seems very doubtful. So is Pycelle just smart enough to know this is what Cersei wants to hear, or not? Feel free to correct me, I'm not sure if we get more on this later on, but for the moment it has me confused. Even if he's gone to the Tyrells, saying he hates Cersei, and is on their side, I don't think Marjorie would trust him like this with something this important. But regardless of that, let's ignore the reasons why. The point is, he's admitted it in court, or in front of other people at least. So boom, big win for Cersei. That is an absolute bullseye, though she does manage to keep her celebrations inside her own skull for now. That is just the first step. She actually is employing some forward thinking and planning for once, but this is still great news. So why not throw another mini victory in there and command all of Giles Rosby's lands and incomes to be left to the crown? It will probably be his biggest contribution to the financial effort of his entire career. That's completely an abuse of power too, but given how she's just treated by Cell, I don't think anyone is going to rush up and defy her. But again, I want to point out, it is really bad policy. She doesn't hang around in power to see the after effects, unfortunately, but this is a really good way to make sure no one ever jumps on her council again. If you're going to work this high responsibility, high stress job for a boss who's pretty hard to get along with, only for everything you earned, both before and after, to be given back to your employer, well, there's very little reason to do that job, isn't there? Especially if you have family or heirs or whatever. It kind of makes the whole thing pretty pointless, and a stronger council would have been in uproar about this move. We see Orton Merriweather in a moment will have very large concerns, and this is probably one of them. And even now, we should note, Pycelle tries to put up a resistance to Giles Rosby's uh, estates being given over, so respect him for that. Speaking of Merriweathers, Taina is prominent here as part of what is really Cersei's true council. Taina, Osmond, Kyburn, Amira, maybe. Everyone else is kind of just a placeholder that she obviously doesn't care about. They are the ones who now discuss the ramifications of Pycelle's admission and what it means for Marjorie. As always, Taina's presence makes the whole thing very complicated. We've got no idea whether she's all for it or is trying to subtly dissuade or what. I will say, judging by what she says, I would bet on her trying to distance Cersei from this idea, but not so much as to get her noticed, obviously. But we know Osmond is pretty terrible, judging by the way he smiles at the idea of finally killing Marjorie. Cersei also has the bright spark of including the Tyrell cousins in the accusation, and now she's really running with the idea. She is really in plot mode. She's thinking of all angles, all kind of loose ends. I've got Pycelle, now if I can get a cousin, I'm just building the case. I want to leave no stone unturned. I want this done with. So we're really in the fast lane for this chapter. Pycelle's confession, like we say, is not enough. The idea is not enough. Cersei wants more. Before we get that, we set the scene on another Cersei dinner with a married couple. The last one didn't turn out too well for the Stokeworths, so Cersei's got a singer this time round to lighten the mood, although Orton is wise enough to be worried about that singer's presence. Perhaps that alone is enough to give away his allegiance. And this scene is where we get the demotion of Harris Swift from Hand to Master of Coin, a move he might actually support just because it takes the spotlight off him a bit. Not that he's been particularly active as Hand of the King. Has he done anything? Can you remember a single thing he's even been involved with since his naming of Hand of the King? I might... I should have looked up how many times he's actually named in this book, because I'm going to bet it's not a lot. That really doesn't make much difference right now, but it does allow, and his entire demotion doesn't actually make that much difference right now, but it does allow for the setup of some of Aya's Mercy storyline coming up in those Winds preview chapters. Meanwhile, Orton is promoted to hand, even if he's not too excited about it, so maybe he's kind of smart. Not to worry, though, he's not going to be there for very long anyway. 
And let's not mistake this for any great endorsement by Cersei. She's not saying, ah, finally, my problems are solved. I've got Orton Merriweather as my hand. No, instead, she can barely pay Orton a compliment in her own mind. Perhaps this is just a move to make sure Taina is hers, or maybe she's literally just filling a hole for a few minutes. Either way, that is accepted and dealt with quickly, with Cersei now turning her attention on the Blue Bard. What? The Blue Bard, yes. Singers are suddenly becoming important for both Jamie and Cersei, aren't they? It's great mirroring there. Great chapter sequencing, as always, for, for George. The Blue Bard's eyes were the same colour as Robert's. For that alone, she hated him. Classic Cersei, yeah, okay. When Cersei decides to smash the Blue Bard in the face of his own loot, it's a sharper snap than George normally gives us. Cersei starts off polite, before dropping the line about taking Marjorie to bed, and then all of a sudden, it's face loot time. It's a massive tension change, a real moment that we probably did not see coming. I don't think anyone expected her to just smash him in the face of a loot. She really does take it to another level that puts the characters and readers really off their game. This is way, way, way above what's needed, clearly. And though Cersei has been acting pretty happy in this chapter so far, it's a big mark of how desperate she is to have this go right, though she likely also relishes being able to deliver some physical pain when that is normally not afforded to her as a woman. The Blue Bard really starts to whimper once Kyber is mentioned, so perhaps he has gained himself a reputation around the castle. Anyway, with the Blue Bard now arrested, again in front of witnesses, our breakneck pace continues as we find ourselves down in the black cells. And now we absolutely find out why we've had this slow build-up of what Kyburn is up to in his basement of terror. There's still Gregor to come, of course, but that hasn't actually been mentioned all that often. What we have been reminded of is Kyburn's experiments, his obvious experience with the human body and how to make it hurt, and his absolute abandonment of any morals or decency of any sort. Sure, it's been resigned to women normally, but now we actually go into the open lair and we've, what we find is not pretty, not in any way. We barely know the Blue Bard, we've known him a couple of pages, We've got basically no reason to like or dislike him. But even if we did dislike him, this is way, way past what you'd want to see done to someone, to a human. Broken teeth, such pain that he's wet himself three times already. It's horrible and piteous to even read about, let alone witness. If it is at all possible you aren't convinced of the evil between Cersei and Kyburn, this should really do the trick, especially when they all but admit they know the guy is innocent and they're just going to torture him until he says what they want to hear anyway. <laughs> it's... Uh... It's a rough passage, I won't lie to you. As if that's not bad enough already, it gets worse when Kyburn takes out his razor. The enjoyment, the amusement Cersei and Kyburn get out of this is beyond despicable. There's really no word that I can think of to describe it. Yet, it even gets so graphic that Cersei dislikes it. Cersei of all people. But she doesn't spend much time thinking on how she sent friends and employees to a similar fate, unfortunately. That doesn't crack through her skull. Besides, she doesn't care that much because things are still going her way. Lord Tywin would not have turned away, she thinks. So, not only that, but she even dares to blame Marjorie for all of this, for pushing this evil upon her and the Blue Bard. It's true madness. This is never her fault. Even though she's standing there in front of the poor guy as he's being mutilated and tortured, she still thinks it's someone else's fault, that she is basically good. She's completely lost touch with reality. I think we know. Eventually, the Bard sings the exact song that Cersei wants to hear, and who could blame him? I think we all probably would in his shoes as well. All those names we've been keeping track of are listed, all these different men, and the fact he only names them because he desperately wants a relief from all this night of pain and his boots full of blood is besides the point for Cersei. As long as everyone hears the confession, she can finally close this trap she's building and defeat the prophecy. It's terrible to see this effect that torture has. It's obviously a constant throughout the series, although this is probably the closest we've been to it pre-Dance Fion, but it makes you think about how many confessions etc have been given under extreme duress, and this is 
another good reference to fire and blood. I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about there. You don't normally find many people glad to be offered the wall, for example. But anywhere in the world is probably better than Kyburn's dungeon. And isn't Cersei sweet, commanding that uh, what the bluebird be given milk of the poppy after his song has been properly adjusted to fit her needs? That ought to grow his eye back. Oh, yeah, he's had an eye taken out, by the way. <sighs> Torture is like really tough work, you guys. So Cersei deserves a good rest to make herself feel better. It's been a, a tough old day for her. So she finds it in the form of a bath of Taina Merriweather, all the while thinking on how much Taina must want her. Okay, sure. They sharpen their little spiderweb of a plan even more, now adding in Alla Tyrell as an accuser, one of Marjorie's cousins. All angles are being considered here, like we said earlier. When she dreams, Cersei dreams of herself being chained to a wall in the black cells. A manifestation of guilt, perhaps? Or foreshadowing for what will eventually become of her in some way in the future? Either way, on waking, she spills the whole story of prophecy and Maggie the Frog to Tainer, and I for one am very interested to see how this information gets used in the future, because I am convinced it will be used in some way. The chapter closes with everything really going Cersei's way now. Our sweet Tommen, so rebellious in the last Cersei chapter, is quite happily chatting about the escapades of his kittens, while his mother convinces herself that this is all worth it for him. Everything she's done is for Tommen. And eventually, he unwittingly gives away where Marjorie is going to be on Maiden's Day. She's headed to the Sept, so if Osney times his confession right, Marjorie can be seized, arrested, and then eventually killed later on. It's the easy streak to victory, and it's obviously so ironic, given Lancel's confession to the High Sparrow, Cersei willingly going to the Sept herself, and the Osney will soon bear a terrible resemblance to the Blue Bard. Or to make another connection, we can look back at Sansa giving info on Ned, or even Ned figuring out Joffrey's parentage thanks to his daughters, the children giving away the key information here at that point. There is one final part of the plan that Cersei now tackles, Osney Cattleblack. Like his brother, Osney isn't shy about getting across what he wants. No, quite the opposite. While Cersei is busy trying to explain the mission, Osney is really of a single-track mind. Not that Cersei minds at the moment. After she explains the intricacies of the plan, Osney agrees, but is a bit more demanding of payment than his brothers are. He knows the danger he'll be in, although obviously not enough. And Cersei, she's come this far. She wants no, no more of this. She just wants to get it done. She actually seems a little tired of fighting, so she gives in to his demands. And I read this ending as a pretty sad moment, I must admit, where Cersei is essentially selling herself to get this job done. She'll say it's worth it, she'll say she did it all for Tommen, but it really feels like she does get kind of cheapened and objectified by Osney here, and it makes for tough reading. The fact that she compares him to Robert makes it even harder, given when she relayed those terrible experiences she had with Robert in the marriage bed a few chapters ago. The fact she's not even allowed to go and prepare, and is basically just forced straight into the act, the fact that she has to wear the crown, it's like she's made into an item or a trophy, and it really does extract some pity from us here at the end. Still, in total, the chapter has been a rousing success in Cersei's view, probably her best ever. She thinks she is mere hours away from total victory, and technically, she will get what she wants in Marjorie being arrested, but has not considered the possibility of things working against her, of how all this scheming will soon be completely removed from her, as well as her freedom and agency, and her son, most key of all. Perhaps we can look at it as her selling her soul in this chapter, if she hasn't already done so before. She tells us again and again she's doing this for Tommen. Noble as that is, we know it's not 100% of the equation. Still, the die is cast now. It's a breakneck chapter because we are hurtling down the hill, and next time we'll go off the cliff in Cersei's final chapter. Still, that is for next week. We are now halfway through uh, this uh, episode, and it's already running long, so let's continue straight off with our third chapter of the day, 
It's our first last chapter and a welcome return to a storyline long gone. It is The Princess in the Tower slash Ariane 2. So how long has it been since we've seen Ariane or the Dornish in general? I don't know about you, but both on my personal reread and this time out, it seems like an absolute age between the Queenmaker chapter and what we have today. In reality, it's actually 19 chapters, so it's not all that bad. Although, in Feast's case, that is not a million miles from half of the book. Just to put it in context, that was way back near the King's Moot, back near Io and Sansa's middle chapters, back with Brienne's fight at the Whispers, so quite a lot has gone on, with George not letting us know any detail at all about what happened after the Queenmaker chapter, really. All we've got since Aerys Oakheart charged towards Area Hotar is Kyburn telling Cersei about Silver Santagar being sent away. We don't know what happened to Darkstar, whether Marcella is still alive, what happened to Ariane. None of it. So it's the long con from George this time out, as much of this chapter will turn out to be as well. For the chapter itself, it's a little comparable to Sansa's final chapter of Storm of Swords. Sansa was very much a princess in a tower in that scenario as well. Isolated, kept in the dark, privy to many revealed secrets towards the end of the book. Ariane won't have any of the same threat of violence that Sansa did, and the relationship with the family member is very different than between Sansa and Lysa as well, but there are similarities there. At the close of this chapter, we'll have a lot revealed to us of a past we never even suspected, and of more importance, what that means to the immediate future. It's a wonderful part of the book, if somewhat of an island compared to the themes we've been dealing with lately, and is a favourite of many of a fan to read and read and read again, as the true nature of Duran Martell, of the Martells in general, is finally given to us. That's after his first being introduced right at the beginning of Feast as this quiet, do-nothing, frustrating uncle-father ruler, so George is really tying together the whole book here as we really enter the final phase, after all. This chapter kicks off the run of endings. Every POV we have from here on out, including this one in Ariane obviously, is a final chapter. So I really like this as a signal of that. And I really just like this chapter in general. I really enjoy Ariane as a POV. I really enjoy the Dornish plot overall. Uh, I'm sure I'll be speaking about this as we go through the chapter. And yeah, this is one of my favourites of the book, if I'm honest, even if it is quite unusual in its structure and content. Lest we forget, like I say, this is a goodbye to Ariane as well. Let's give her her due. We've only had two POVs from her, and it is the most stretched out arc of any of the two POV characters in this book, but it's a goodbye nonetheless, because she has been given two of the book's key moments and is really responsible for carrying the Dornish plot. Ario Hotar is so long ago now as a POV, and everyone rushes to forget Aerys Oakheart chapter for some reason. So Ariane takes centre stage, which makes it even weirder that this is the last time we have her as a POV total. It's easy to forget, but we'll return to Ario as the POV for the lone Dornish chapter, sorry Quentin, you don't technically count, where we learn all about the future plans for King's Landing and Dawn and how the Martells slash Sand Snakes intend to affect Westeros while Quentin is out dealing with Essos, in theory. We do have two Ariane Winds of Winter preview chapters to consider, but they are mostly travelogue chapters and definitely not the juicy stuff that George is obviously holding back for now, so we have to appreciate the amount of Ariane we get here today because it'll be quite a while before we see through her eyes again in the future, even if she is a major character in that lone dance chapter. That all means we're basically saying goodbye to our Dornish plot as well, one of those key characteristics of Feast that we spoke about so often at the beginning of the book, and throughout really. Obviously, the duality with the Ironborn story has been abandoned now, with Victorian's final POV coming 11 chapters prior to this one. Though note, they do pick up another sense of mirroring in dance, with Victorian and Quentin travelling towards Daenerys, so there's at least embers of this Ironborn-Dornish partnership going forward. To be fair, the mirroring 
does also kind of continue in this book as this is the lone follow-up we get to the Queenmaker plot as we got one follow-up to the Kingsmoot, with both of those ending with Dragon Talk. As for here and now in Westeros, it's the end. We do have the Arrow chapter in Dance, yes, that's true, but that feels more like an epilogue to the whole ordeal. As mentioned earlier, this is the development of Duran as a character. This is obviously a follow-up to the Queenmaker plot and the examination of how childish or short-thinking plotting does not stack up to the masters of the game, the value of life over victory argument that really is fascinating, and really the hint of why we've been told all of this story, other than the Dornish plot in a vacuum being really high quality in my opinion, even if not everyone agrees. It's because we're going to interact with dragons in the end, one kind or the other. Feast began with the word dragons. The Dornish plot, that I far prefer over the Ironborn, shows exactly why that is. Feast is really a book of reaction. How have all these big events of the War of the Five Kings and Daenerys' taking of the Slaver's Bay affected the world? Dawn is as good a representation of that as any. Let's zero in on the chapter itself now. We don't need to examine the inversion of princesses in the tower tropes. That's always the first port of call when discussing this chapter, which is fair, given its title. Although I do like to compare it to how Sansa used to be kept up in the Tower of the Hand while events played out beneath her. Sansa is way younger, of course, but it's both from reaction to flights of fancy, you might call them. While there's obviously vast differences in the reasons they are kept in towers and what happens when they do come out, but in general, I do like comparing those characters as they work in very similar arenas once Sansa is a bit older. There's a, a similar skill set they're working with here. And like I say, this chapter is generally high on my list. I like the Dawn plot, I like Ariane, I love the great view of Sunspear we get, the way Duran basically turns Ariane into a toddler for a little while by refusing her certain things, while also trying to get her to stop and think a bit, that's good. I love how that only works to a certain degree, and Ariane still remains defiant until the end when it comes down to it. And of course, the pure brilliance of the end itself. This view of a building, bubbling vengeance finally about to spill out into the world. The idea that we'll get much more of Oberyn's place in the story, even if not in the same style. And that is superb. That's a pretty basic roundup though. I feel if I asked most of you to describe the plot of this chapter, you would say Ariane is in the tower and then she has a conversation with Duran. And while that is correct, this is actually the longest of any Dornish or Ironborn chapter in the whole book. Longer than the Kingsmoot, longer than the Queenmaker, and it's very surprising. In fact, this is actually the fourth longest chapter in A Feast for Crows, and it's essentially tied with Brienne 4 at The Whispers. There's a mere difference of 40 words, so it's pretty much the same. And then we have Jamie Free at Harrenhal, and obviously our famously long next chapter with Sansa, so there's lots to get into here. The opening few paragraphs are a nice encapsulation of what Ariane is going to be thinking about during her imprisonment. Here's the quote. And she would weep. When he saw tears rolling down her face, he would forgive her. She was less certain whether she would forgive herself. Straight from the off, we have her wondering about her father's intentions, wondering how she can use her skills to deflect those intentions, and we have the guilt of the previous plot creeping through. Before this quote, she thinks about whether her father intends to have her killed. That might seem pretty alarming to us, but let's not kid ourselves. We've seen plenty of fathers who would consider such a thing. And Ariane already feels emotionally distant from Duran. She already suspects him of not loving her, so it makes sense. At the least, it shows she understands how grave the situation is now because of her. Next comes the dealing. How can she present herself to Duran to get the best reaction? That's what she's good at. That's her skill set. Reading the situation, presenting herself in a certain light, and controlling those around her. Does she need to be the beautiful, sexy temptation she is with Eris and perhaps Darkstar? The popular leader, as with her friends? The sister she is to the Sand Snakes? The elder friend she is to Marcella? The young girl she is with Ario? 
The comparisons to Sansa pop up again. This is the exact thing she's learning up in the Vale. You'll see Arianne think heavily on whether to go meek and or proud to her father, which will give which one will give her the best result. I doubt we've seen the last of this either. She will have to do a very similar dance in Winds up at King's Landing with Fagon or the others or whoever she comes across. But also there's the guilt, probably the main focus of the chapter prior to her meeting with Duran. We'll talk about it as we go, but this is another carry through to those Winds preview chapters after she finds out the fate of her friends rather than just having to imagine the worst. She doesn't linger on this part just yet, and to be fair, the guilt has to be spread out over Aris, Marcella, and her companions, but it does go to show that Ariane does care for her friends at least. We discussed in the Queenmaker chapter, she is not a pure Cersei, only concerned with her power and position and herself. She is focused on those things, or more accurately, what is due to her as an heir, and fairly, I would say, but she is also a good person at her core, with genuine care for people, even if her treatment of Marcella has been misguided and cruel. Unsurprisingly, given how long we've been without a Dornish chapter, and considering the sheer amount of time this chapter covers, we're going to have a few flashbacks to the return journey from the Greenblood. Really, they're more like flashback lights that George sometimes likes to do, where it comes just in the form of a sentence or two. The first of those comes in Ariane immediately giving us an example of what we've just discussed as she tries to appeal to Ario through presenting herself as the young girl he once knew. And we know from his own POV, he still sees her as that, so she's right on the money. She's someone to be protected, helped, but in a preview of the rest of the chapter, Ariane's attempts remain fruitless. Next quote here to move on. He had outraced all his pursuers and vanished into the deep desert with blood upon his blade. So key info early on, Darkstar is still alive, he's out there somewhere and he's dangerous. This is obviously a major plot point going forward, one that people like to guess about a lot, and assumedly it might tie into the fates of Ario, Obara and Balon Swan. More important is the withholding of information on Marcella. George is always brilliant in this way, brilliant and cruel because we want to know. Technically he's addressing the issue, but he's not actually telling us what we need to know. Is Marcella dead or isn't she? There's blood on Darkstar's blade, but what does that mean? Given that she's so great and we care about her so much, George definitely knows what he's doing in withholding the key info from us just yet. You cruel bastard Georgie. Now we fast forward to the arrival at Sunspear, with Ariane's ex expectations immediately proven wrong. Again, we'll see that over and over through the chapter. As she's escorted the 150 feet to the top of the spear tower, we see how Duran's power is far more absolute than she dreamed, even with him being absent from the castle for years. Ario is a rock, okay, we knew that, but the Seneschal and Castellan are just as unwilling to give her anything, even though she's been running Sunspear for like two years. All she learns is that her friends have been sent to this offshore prison that sounds truly awful. I really hope we never have a POV that has to go there. So they are alive at least, but again, Ariane is concerned about what her father is truly capable of and what will happen to her friends next because of her. Then comes Ariane's introduction to her new home atop the tower, something I obviously had to look at a lot for the castle's book because this looks kind of great. Gentle prison indeed, that's what she calls it. There's a nice room, has superb views of Sunspear and the surrounding geography, has a vast table and some books. As we'll learn later from the man himself, all of this is done with a point in mind, it's all meant to help Ariane learn and grow and appreciate her position in the political world. But Ariane has no mind for any of that right now, or indeed later on. Once she's finally home, left alone, the guilt comes back out in force, this time focused on Eris Oakheart. Her friends are alive for now at least, so her focus switches to the former knight instead because he is definitely very dead as she relives here. She thinks of it sleeping, she thinks of it waking. The thoughts don't go away, and even if she is concentrating on this never being her intention, that she never meant bad things to happen to anyone, 
I think she is subconsciously thinking about how she did ensnare Eris into the plot. She brought him into this whole thing. He would still be alive if not for her efforts. And that's not to criminalise Ariane or wipe off Eris's own part in his proceedings, but that definitely is what she's thinking of now. So Eris was still dead. And Marcella? I never wanted that. Never. I meant the girl no harm. All I wanted was for her to be queen. So again, Marcella's fate is left as a mystery as Ariane focuses on what she wanted instead of what is now reality. That will be a focus of Duran's conversation later on as well. He surely wanted immediate, bloody revenge for Elia, and the same again for Oberyn. He wanted to go charging up there without risking the lives of his people, but it's not possible. There is no such thing as a bloodless shortcut, so we have his planning instead, as Ariane will come to learn. And also, Ariane is simplifying there. She did want Marcella to be queen, yes, but let's not act like it was 100% about improving the young girl's life. Ariane's own position was the major motivation. Someone told. Someone she had loved. That was the cruelest cut of all. So Ariane's own mini-mantra there, first introduced at the end of her first chapter, and it makes early return here as Ariane shifts the blame, or at least the focus of it, from herself onto the mystery of, who, of whoever betrayed her. It's a mystery you still don't have an answer to, and I admit I've never come across anything that particularly persuades me of anyone giving up the secret anyone specific. It's another one I really wouldn't be surprised if we never find out about, because again, I think the larger point of Duran's is that you can't risk it, even with 99% accuracy of anyone other than family, and that has its own pitfalls as well. Oh yes, and we're again told of blood running down Marcella's face, but we're still not informed of her actual fate. George just keeps going with this one, he really knows what he's doing. The next section is basically a repeat, which is exactly how it's meant to feel to both Ariane and us. First, we have her thinking of how to deal with her father, by making him uncomfortable with her dress sense this time. Then, the expectations not being met when he still doesn't arrive. She shows herself as a good person by thinking of what her friends are eating, and at least making an attempt by sharing their hardship and not eating herself. And then the return of guilt again, when there is nothing else left to do but feel guilty. This is another key part of Duran's masterfully constructed lessons here. He's making sure Ariane will have the time to really feel the depth of what she's done, so she will never forget and play with the lies of her subjects again. I never meant for you to die. Or for Marcella. Oh, gods be good, that little girl. Just tell us, George. Come on now, stop with these teasing quotes. By this time, first-timers are surely assuming that Marcella has actually died, but many might be noticing that George is still avoiding the actual subject. And again, we end up on someone told. So it's a complete repeat of the structure here. And someone told kicks off the next three paragraphs as Ariane puzzles over who someone might be. She discounts her friends immediately, which is nice, but will make many of us suspect them even more because we know who George is by now. Instead, she makes the case first for Darkstar and then for Aris, these two men of light and dark who are so oppositional across the board. What she says on both counts makes complete sense and really gets us no closer to an actual answer. Instead, she is left alone for another day and then another. Though she doesn't realise it, the books Duran has left clearly give the indication he wants her to learn, learn things that will be of value going forward knowing her land through these annotated maps, knowing the history of what's been done before, knowing their laws inside out, maybe even learn a bit about the dragons to help out with later on, who knows? But all of this goes over Ariane's head for now. She just wants some stories at the moment. And who can blame her? There's that Sansa connection once more. Time in the tower moves on, with still no Duran appearing. As Ariane details the servants, for her, the most important aspect is their silence, another genius move by Duran not just in keeping Ariane in the dark and therefore her mind, hopefully, on the task of learning, but as a frustration technique and basically a punishment for what she's done. Ariane firstly laughs at this idea, calling it feeble. 
Is that all? Silence. I can deal with silence, she thinks. Instantly signalling to us, we'll surely find out that she is wrong. All of Ariane's questions to the servants go unanswered, which is no good for her, but does finally get some answers about Marcella. Too weak to sit a horse, Marcella had travelled in a litter, her head bound up in silken bandages, where Darkstar had slashed to her, her green eyes bright with fever. So we kind of get an answer. Marcella didn't die at the green blood. Darkstar was not successful, not immediately anyway. But she was clearly injured, bleeding from the face, she had a fever. She may well have died since. Either way, all his readers become gravely concerned for this very best of characters, and we just want to know, George. Just tell us, black and white, please. With Marcella, at least kind of safe in Ariane's mind, she turns to another group of people she does have genuine feelings for and is really worried about in the Sand Snakes, and especially in her favourite, Tyene, the sister she used to replace the two brothers she could never connect with, her actual two brothers. We get a happy glimpse into the raising of these children. How Tyene is essentially one of the companions we saw in the Queenmaker chapter, except she wasn't there. How many life experiences they've shared together, and how Sorella also appears to have been a bit of an outsider, so that might end up being of importance too in the future, because we're going to assume Sorella's going to have some kind of role to play. The realisation that her cousins are perhaps only a few feet below her gets Ariane forgetting poise and dignity and pounding on the floor or yelling out the window instead. It's a pretty funny passage. There is this element of the uh, spoiled, maybe, princess finally being told off and sent to bed without dinner. I like to think a few of these silent servants are actually feeling a bit smug at Ariane resorting to floor pounding. And it goes to show the level she has already reached because what would she really be able to do if they could hear her? Do, does she think it would go unnoticed? Does she think it would get her out the door? Unfortunately, it doesn't work anyway, and Ariane is made to wait. And we wait with her for a whole fortnight as time moves on. Another Duran lesson to be found here. Simply, sometimes, you have to wait. It doesn't mean you have to wait and do nothing. Even if Ariane doesn't play the Savas or read the books, she does busy herself with making a plan, so pretty much like her father. Perhaps he suspected as much. Perhaps he wanted to appraise her skills in this fashion as well. She tries to make the servants talk, which has had no effect. Okay. Neither is just charging out the room. Okay. So Ariane finally begins to use her, her real skills properly. Prince Oberyn had armed each of his daughters, so they need never be defenseless. But Ariane Martel had no weapon but her guile. Again, we have that Sansa comparison as Ariane takes control of young Cedra, or Cedra, I'm going to say Cedra, a girl besotted with Garen. There is a manipulation factor we haven't quite seen from Sansa yet, but the knowledge of relationships and how the table is set between all these many players is definitely Sansa-like, and we see that repeated once Ariane has Cedra inside and she wonders who to send her to. Ariane gives a great rundown of several Dornish lords and powers and who would be most suited as an ally, and we can absolutely see Sansa doing this same totting up of relationships up in the Vale or anywhere else she ends up. It is clever how Ariane brings Cedra inside, and is very much a good representation of her skill. Charging out the door or banging on the floor doesn't fit for Ariane, but going slow, dropping a name here, building up to painting another image there, is definitely within her skill set. Eventually, she chooses Lord Fowler as her potential saviour, though her deliberation can maybe be seen as Dawn not being as united as we might hope, especially in regard to the mad others. You have to wonder if they will have some part going forward, because George has really highlighted them here. As for the contents of the letter she wants to send to, along with Cedra, well, they are what you'd expect. Please come rescue me. But when you think about it, Ariane is really proposing the beginning of a civil war here. She is asking a powerful lord, a Dornish bannerman, to ride against his liege lord, his prince, and come and disobey his orders in order to free someone he, he has imprisoned based on the fact that she is the heir. So this is out and out asking for someone to support one political party over the other. And if this had gone through, 
there's almost no way it doesn't all end in blood and a huge fracturing of the Dornish as a realm. Either the Fowler Force is instantly attacked and killed for the breaking of oaths, or Ariane is saved and then propped up as a rallying point to take on Duran because they're not going to come and do this for nothing, are they? Which would be an ironic twist on the Queenmaker plot. Luckily for all, the letter does not get delivered. Cedra does not return. You have to think Duran is obviously keeping a very keen eye on all who are interacting with Ariane, knowing how delicate the political scene is right now and definitely not wanting any perceived weakness between the Martell family to get out. He probably considers it a mere child's play to not let the letter get out. With the plan scuppered, it's tantrum time instead. Ariane gets a bit haughty now when she asks for the Seneschal instead of her father, referring to him as Mir and herself as the heir of Sunspear, the mighty heir of Sunspear. That isn't enough. Poor old Timoth, he gets a jug of wine over his head just for doing his job, so we really are in spoiled princess territory now. Anger at her father, as Ariane thinking of her uncle Oberyn instead, the man she so admires and the man she really wanted as a father, for all the agency he allows his daughters, or allowed rather. Hearing Oberyn's parenting strategy definitely makes for good reading, and it's definitely a pretty cool approach, although I suspect we might be questioning some of those choices by the series end. For Ariane, it is merely a question of freedom and respect. The Sand Snakes got it, and she didn't, as every youth clamours for from their parent, that's what they really want. The Sand Snakes are allowed to do whatever they wish, in pretty much all aspects of life. Ariane is not, especially in terms of marriage, as she takes us through the history of Duran's suggested betrothals. He denies the ones she is actually interested in, like Damon Sand or Jay. Okay, Ariane accepts that, she's smart, she knows that's not politically going to happen, but he also denies the political ones that she might be interested in, like Renly, or Edmure, or Willis, which makes for good alas alarming across the board there, and instead proposes all these older fellows that Ariane tells us about, and will obviously have zero interest in, which is very much the point re-readers know. It's good groundwork for George to lay here for the preparation at the, for the end of the chapter, but it does make sense why Ariane would be so wounded and frustrated by all of this. It's a pretty bad look for Duran from her POV, one that does signal not just a lack of respect, but of any loving at all. And it's easy to see why Ariane leapt to such conclusions after hearing about the letter to Quentin. It would all connect in her mind, wouldn't it? A great planner he might be, but Duran's coldness towards his daughter and his inability to just communicate with her and kind of get across why he's doing these things should not be discounted. The end of Ariane's imprisonment reveals her stay here for the torture it is, and you have to wonder if Duran, while trying to teach a lesson, really is blazingly angry about what Ariane has done and forced and risked and meant for her to suffer in this way. The tiredness, the lack of eating, the clear melancholy that she enters. Duran is perhaps getting daily updates on her and has waited until she's at this level and has taken all she can before finally summoning her. Don't know. But summon her he does in the form of her old friend, Aria Hotar. And instantly we can see what an amazing moment it is that someone is merely talking to her. She's been denied even that much and it means a lot to her. It's one of the most basic things that most of us receive every day, and now that's been restored, it's so good that she finally smiles. More critically, the first thing she does with such a gift is ask where Cedra is. You can make up your own minds whether she is more concerned about the letter or the girl carrying it, but I choose the latter. I think it weighed heavy on Ariane's soul that she might have sent another innocent to Gaston Grey, or perhaps somewhere even worse. But then comes news that she has finally been summoned by her father, and it acts as an immediate spark. It gets her out of bed, in the bath, eating food again. I said Hotar. Never had she heard a sweeter sound. Again, not just because someone is talking to her, but because she's being obeyed again, and she's clearly missed it. In her preparation, Ariane again thinks on how best to present herself, and this time decides on humble and contrite. The imprisonment has obviously worked its magic in that regard. Now we finally move on to the meeting itself, a personal one in the solar as opposed to the official Ariane expected in the Tower of the Sun. 
Finally, for the first time since the third chapter of the book, we're reintroduced to Duran Martel. And he doesn't look great sat behind his Savas table. The gout is raging. Perhaps it looks worse because Ariana's seeing it for the first time. Maybe it is actually worse since Ario's chapter. Regardless, I think Duran allowing his daughter to see him like this is the first concession of the meeting. A vulnerability that's supposed to say, we are family, we're not holding any secrets while we talk here. Now into the conversation itself, here's her first quote. I remember, echoed Ario Hotai in his deep voice. The bears danced and the bells rang and the prince wore red and gold and orange. My lady asked me who it was who shone so bright. The first subject from Duran doesn't really seem to be related to the current situation at all as he uses the Savas table to take him back to his meeting of his future wife in Volantis. Perhaps because he wants to focus on Malario now, that he has to deal with the daughter they made together, their firstborn. Perhaps because he wants to remember that even he shone so bright once upon a time. Perhaps just because he wants to launch into a Savas talk once Ario is dismissed. For that is the point he launches into straight away, perhaps the biggest lesson he gives in this whole discussion. Sometimes it's better to study a game before you attempt to play it. How well do you know the game, Ariane? Well enough to play, but not to win. My brother loved to fight for his own sake. I only play such games as I can win. This is really important. It's an interesting philosophy for us to study and the big reason why I kind of like Duran. At first glance, it shouldn't be so because this appears to be flying in the face of Brienne's own philosophy. You fight for what is right, no matter if you win or lose. This appears to be the opposite, like I say, but if you look at it for a few seconds, you realize they're actually saying the same thing. You fight to protect people. In Brienne's case, it is saying you fight to protect the innocents even if it means danger or death to yourself. From Duran's view, it is saying you do not fight or start a war, thereby sending innocents to their deaths, unless you know you can win and reduce the damage as much as possible. It's actually a very similar message presented from two oppositional viewpoints. The fighting, the active to save lives, or the restraint, the staying away from war to save lives. The small folk or the lone knight with a single sword in hand and the highborn noble, the lord who can control armies and start war. That's our two viewpoints. This is the first time that duality has really jumped out to me on this read and I have to say I find that an amazing play by George especially with these two chapters being so close together and it makes me just love this book and that message that it gives even more. Essentially this great game so beloved by Peter Baelish and those who call it by some other name is not a game. These are human lives you are toying with here and they are not to be trifled with. You have to appreciate Duran's way of looking at this because it's a lesson and philosophy the rest of Westeros dearly needed or needs to learn. Think how differently this series or this war would have gone if more people had looked at it this way. Place ego or honour or revenge or ambition behind the cost of human lives instead of in front. That kind of care and thought is so rare throughout this world we really do have to treasure it. That's not to make Duran out as a 100% saint. He still wants to win. He still wants that revenge and that victory. He just doesn't want to spend thousands of lives in losing. There's still a very real chance he'll lose thousands in winning if he ever does reach that level. But the very fact he considers the human cost is valuable in itself. It really plays into the message of the book, like I say, and this continuing theme from Brienne, so you know I love it. For the moment, this is lost on Ariane. She only knows she should be able to see some kind of reaction from Duran. He should be angry, he should be raging, he should be active because that's how Oberyn Martell would have done it. And we can see why Ariane likes Oberyn so much and the certain advantages he did have over his brother. But we also have to recognise, as cool as he might be, if Oberyn had been born the elder and had retained his personality as we know it, who knows how much of Duran's own personality has been dampened by the weight of responsibility, then Dawn and its people would probably already be dead by now. There's next to no doubt in my mind about that fact. 
Oberyn is with me every time I close my eyes, because he loved him, for sure, but also perhaps as a cautionary tale. The lack of obvious action, or even reaction, throws Ariane's meek and timid plan out the window. She's too angry for any of that and goes defiant instead, whether that is trying to shame him or sitting down uninvited or whatever. She firstly asks about Darkstar, and we're told what we already know about his escape, though Duran of all people calling him the most dangerous man in Dawn really does make you think. I don't think Duran is the type of man to just throw up hyperbole. Obviously, it's in reference to his fighting skills, but also due to his links to both of the Dane branches. Could that bring them into the fold, or could that split them, maybe? Hmm, interesting. Anyway, no one cares about that right now, because Ariane gets the only true important question Ariane was almost afraid to ask. Marcella, is she... dead? No, though Darkstar did his best. Finally, about fucking time, George. After nine odd pages of hints and wordplay, we get confirmation that Marcella has not died. Oh, thankfully. And doesn't seem to be dying either, importantly. But only by the good grace of chance. If not for her trusty horse, who I think should be getting a medal, Darkstar would have killed her in a single stroke. Instead, she has been disfigured, and as we'll find out later, has lost an ear. That's sad enough to hear about any child, especially one like Marcella, but it does fit in a bunch dramatically, considering this is Cersei's daughter. Cersei, who has always cherished her own looks for so long. She was my ward, Ariane, betrothed to your own brother and under my protection. You have dishonoured all of us. You get the sense that this is one of the things that angers Duran the most, that whatever conflicts the adults might have, the protection and exclusion of children should be something as sacred as, if not more so, than guest right. He probably links this back to the killing of Aegon and Rhaenys in the Red Keep. Technically, they were not wards while at the Red Keep, they were with their mother, but whatever happens with the betrayal of Ares and the sack of the city, the two children, at the very least, should have been taken prisoner and protected as wards. Every conceivable law of both war and peace should tell you so. The fact that was not done still burns at him. Hence his abhorrence that anything should happen to Marcella while she is under his agreed-upon protection. It is just not done. Even ignoring the world political ramifications, Duran does not want Marcella to be harmed, and obviously flies in the face of what the Sand Snakes were asking for earlier, this idea of, well, they killed one of ours, let's kill one of theirs, even if it is a child. It is at least different in that regard. No, we're not doing that, no chance. And Ariane didn't want her to be harmed either, as she reaffirms that she never intended that and tries to put the blame elsewhere. As Duran and the reader can attest to here, so what? You didn't mean for her to get disfigured. Great, okay, let's see if that will grow back her ear and heal their scars. That's not the point. It happened anyway because of you. Duran next defends why starting a war is such a bad idea thanks to their low numbers. And I definitely find it interesting that they've allowed larger rumours to keep going on for years in this way to protect them from their own weakness. It's basically another form of keeping his gout secret, isn't it? But we also learn Duran is not completely innocent when it comes to Marcella. He was told about the Queenmaker plot before Ariane and the others departed, but did not react straight away because he wanted to believe in family. It was Marcella who paid the cost for such trust. I want to know who informed on me. I would as well in your place. Will you tell me? I can think of no reason why I should. I really do love this little passage. It is so patently dad talk, completely designed to be frustrating and impassable. I think we've all experienced it. Perhaps that's just me getting a little bit older, but it is definitely effective, and it leads into Duran's next lesson of making Ariane distrust everyone for a little while. After trading some verbal barbs, we go on to the fate of Ariane's companions, and even here, she tries to goad her father by claiming his leniency is only another act of cowardice because he doesn't want to piss off his lords, leading to this little teaser. I dare more than you dream. Ooh, yes, we like that one more, that please. As discussed back in the Queenmaker chapter, Dre is sent to Norvos for three years. Garen to Tyrosh for two years, though his family have also been charged in coin and children. The outlier is Silver, 
who Duran has the audacity to claim received no punishment from him. Yeah, just a mere life sentence to a man three or four times her age, away from home on a windswept island. Better than death, okay, yeah, sure, but still incredibly harsh. Speaking of death, the conversation turns to Aris Oakheart, with Ariane definitely not playing coy about what happened between them as she remembers how she manipulated him with her body while his shame overrun him. Again, the question of what he was thinking as he charged takes over Ariane's mind. But enough of the past, more of the present. Duran reveals yet more quiet smarts as we find Bayon Swan is being delayed by every Dornish house on his route. But delay is the key word. He will still arrive. He will find Mercedes disfigured and Aris dead. And there will be consequences. Even if Ariane failed in her main objective, the waves cannot be stopped now. He needs me, Ariane realised. That's why he sent for me. Ever cunning, Ariane figures out what is going on when Duran talks of needing Marcella to say what they tell her. Though she does do a disservice to the lesson teaching, she's at least getting everyone on the same page aspect of this meeting. You mistake patience for forbearance. I have worked at the downfall of Tywin Lannister since the day they told me of Elliot and her children. It's building, it's building, we're getting there. Ariane senses the tide and feels it's time to make her own demands. And after some quick flight confusion between her father and daughter, we get to the real issue between them both. Ariane's belief that she has been shunned for Quentin long ago. A quick note on Quentin. I like this sentence or two from Duran, outlining why Quentin should be the one to be angry. He's been sent away as a child, he's going to be used as a tool, etc. This is all before he knows Quentin has died on his task, a task Duran sent him on. Guess he may save thousands of lives with his slow burn method, but the overall obsession with vengeance has still corrupted the lives of at least one of his children, if not more in the future. I'd place a heavy bet on that returning to Duran's mind in the future. Ariane is not thinking of any of that, of course. She is finally letting her emotions out. This thing that's been burning inside of her so long, that has pushed her to such lengths as creating an entire Queenmaker plot, is finally out in the open and in front of her father, the one she believes betrayed her. It's a key emotional moment, and only now does Duran realise how much she's been affected by it, that his own secrets had a large role to play in the formation of Ariane's great mistake. For him to realise his own daughter believes that he hates her, there aren't many worse feelings in the world. Which finally leads us to the good stuff. First, Duran's clever plan of picking matches he knew Ariane would reject because he's so confident in her strength. But way, way more interestingly, is the revelation that Ariane was already promised. The old ones are so frail. Was it a broken hip? A chill? The gout? It was a pot of molten gold. We princes make our careful plans, and the gods smash them all awry. Whoa, 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 pot of molten gold. Hello, ding dong, we know that one, don't we? George is spectacular as foreshadowing and breadcrumb clues, but every so often, we get something completely out of the blue that no one could have guessed, and this is one right here. After Duran laments keeping this from Ariane for too long, while also explaining why, he lets the reader know that Ariane was once betrothed to Viserys Targaryen. What? What? Okay. For the first time, this is a huge revelation that really does explode in the mind. What is he on about? When was this done? Why were we never told? Who knew? Who didn't? It's a huge deal to try and wrap our head around the long dead secrets of the past here. Hence why I compare this chapter to Sansa's in the Eerie. And we could really discuss the implications of this for quite a long time. I'll have to do it a little bit quicker right now. The main point of it is is that Dawn wanted to ally with the dragons even after Robert took the throne. We already know that Oberyn wanted to restart the war, we already know that Jon Arryn had to come down and smooth everything over, but we had no clue that something this concrete was put in place. And what if it had actually happened? How utterly different would the world be? There'd probably be no dragons for a start, but I mean, well, like I said, we could talk about that for a long time. We might have to save that for an another, another episode perhaps. 
George barely gives us time to contemplate what that means though. We get some very quick info on the sand snakes, both young and old, but instead we get more big old breadcrumbs. That Ariane would have gone to Tyrosh to meet Viserys, but that plan was scuppered as well. We aren't allowed to think about that either, as Dran outlines the next part of the Dornish plot for us, one that links them right back to the Ironborn and Victorian, a journey to a foreign land. She narrowed her eyes. What is our heart's desire? Vengeance. His voice was soft, as if we were afraid that someone might be listening. Justice. Prince Duran pressed the onyx dragon into her palm with his swollen, gouty fingers and whispered, Fire and blood. Oh, yes, it's the big one. It's the huge moment that is obviously quoted again and again by the fandom. We might have had a hint about past allegiances to the dragons. Now we're getting full-on declarations about the present. It's quite a difference. Quentin is going to find Daenerys and bring her back. Duran plans to ally Dawn with Daenerys and use that as a vehicle to finally take revenge on King's Landing and the Lannisters, to finally find justice to what has been done to his family all his years ago. As news goes, it's not much bigger than this, and it is a huge revelation on multiple counts. Firstly, that Duran is obviously not so meek as presented, that he has been hard at work for all these years and is actively working to bring down the Lannisters. He's just been waiting for a game changer to make sure it works, and they don't come much bigger than Daenerys. Here's a game changer on multiple counts. We now see there is a similar plot to Victarion of seeking out Daenerys, so first timers can assume we'll soon see Daenerys having to address these very different suitors. Some might even be guessing we'll next see Tyrion in Essos as well, because that seems to be the way the wind is blowing. And perhaps most important of all, we're now making concrete connections between Daenerys, who has always been half a world away, little more than a rumour on these shores, and the land of Westeros. There are now people, powerful people, not only believing in her existence, but planning on what to do when she gets here. They fully expect her return, they fully expect an invasion, a retaking of the crown, a new war. All of this is finally coming true, after all these years of it just being a promise. Such is the hope of the first time reader, anyway. It's what makes this ending so brilliant as a connection back to the prologue, when dragons was the first word here, when Daenerys was just a story to get the facts wrong about. We've gone from that to a concrete plan to support and use her, an entire kingdom with Westeros is about to sign over to her. It's huge, as is the sheer weight and complexity of Duran's plans. He wasn't kidding. He's been waiting. He's been plotting. Viserys didn't work because of that human element in Malaria, just as Varys and Illyro discovered later on. But a new plan has been formed and is being instigated. It's hugely exciting for both past and present, and I personally would not have been surprised if George had chosen to put this as the final chapter of the book. It would have been a hell of a send-off, especially leading into a book so focused on dragons. Still, we know this is one of the weightier chapters in Feast, if not the series. We'll have to wait to find out about how Ariane will now sign on to do her part, to find out that Quentin will actually fail in his mission, and whether Dawn will still ally with Daenerys, or whether she will be blamed, a common theme when discussing Danny's future. And this is all coming before the wrinkle of young Griff being thrown in for Dance and Ariane's wind chapters. Still, it's amazing as a chapter, and I do really love it. So, farewell Ariane, we will pick you up in winds again for Dawn, kind of in Dance, kind of with Quentin, but very different to how we get you here. Okay, we are running long, so let's get on to our final chapter of the day, the final Sansa chapter. Yes, it's Elaine 2 slash Sansa 3. So we move from Sansa-like to actual Sansa. This is the second longest chapter in all the Song of Ice and Fire, like I mentioned earlier. It's the longest actual POV chapter, sorry Crescent. No one else clears 9,000 words, and this is over 10,000. Is a goodbye chapter as well, which we've got used to in this book, but this is different. We said goodbye to Aya last week, but we're getting her again in dance. 
For Sansa, one of our core viewpoints over the entire series, a member of the main family, this is all we have in the published material. It's a very weird feeling, only really comparable to Bran, and at least he gets to come back. But I've always personally felt like Sansa is a stronger focus in the books than Bran, especially as we've gone on, although I know plenty of people would feel the opposite. Still, it's just weird to leave her, considering how she's the only window into an entire realm. She's our camera for one of the biggest players on the continent, and perhaps the biggest villain. And really, we are leaving her in the middle of a problem. This isn't Aya sailing off to Essos at the end of Storm, with her kind of storylines wrapped up there. Sandra's still hidden, she's still bound to Sweet Robin in some way, her skills are still growing, and she's still in Peter's control. Of course, we want to see so much more as quickly as possible, and we can guess a lot of future plot points for Sansa, especially with the help of her Wins preview chapters, but really we don't know all that much. While talking about what might happen going forward, we have to concentrate on, on Harry the Heir, especially mentioned in the last chapter as a focus of Littlefingers, and now actually introduced to Sansa slash Elaine. Clearly a key plot point moving forward for Sansa and those guesses that we'd like to have, thanks to Wins. Before we get on this, check the name usage as we like to do with the Stark sisters. There's 10 uses of Sansa this time out compared to three previously. Considering the size of this chapter, it's not that much. Only two of the 10 are Sansa referring to herself internally, you know what I mean. And one of them this time round is when she's thinking that she knows what a wolf sounds like. So far, Sansa thinks of herself as Sansa when thinking of ice and when thinking of wolves. Ice the sword, I mean there. I'd say that's a pretty clear clue of what we should look at. Though the flip of that is she is referring to Sansa as a separate person, even in a her own head and not in conversation, way, way more, which is unfortunate. She also reiterates to herself that she has to keep this ruse up or she would be killed for Joffrey, or for Joffrey's murder, I should say. She must be Elaine even more than she is now, so the name thing is really getting important. And oh man, we're not only saying goodbye to Sansa, we're saying goodbye to the Eerie. We're saying goodbye to a lot of castles lately, and well, the Eerie is just next up, I guess. We knew it was coming from the last Sansa chapter, but now it's official. Winter is here, and the few remaining guests of the castle need to head down to beat the snows. It is a bit of a special case. Of the other great castles, we mostly either haven't seen them yet, or we'll be seeing them in the near future. Riverrun, Sunspear, Storm's End, the Red Keep, Winterfell itself. Only Pike and Dragonstone have been removed for a long time, and might have to wait a while to be seen again, although we're probably more confident about Dragonstone than Pike. But this might be our first real goodbye, as in we are never, ever coming back to the Eyrie. That would be the logical answer. It gets covered in snow. You literally can't get back up there. And I think we're all thinking we're going to spend the, the rest of the series in the, in the grip of winter, whatever the title of the last book is. So we'll have no reason to see it again on page. And not to repeat myself too much on the Castles book, but I do hold on to the theory that maybe Danny will fly a dragon up there at some point just to get away from it all. But that's probably wishful thinking on my part. So we'll assume this is our first true farewell to a great castle, an important one despite this elongated absence in Clash and Storm. I'll remind you, it's the second castle we ever visited and has had more than its fair share of major moments. But winter is oncoming, so we've got to shift. Sansa is a Stark, she knows you don't argue with snow. We open when nearly everyone has already gone, and the skeleton crew remains to take care of Sansa and Robin, but they'll all be headed down as well. Robert is in peak brat slash chamber pot throwing mode, and Sansa is the one to put up with the brunt of it. In fact, she is the one who they now all defer to with matters about Sweet Robin. She already has a slice of control and respect, and the first place reflects what we saw in some of Ariane. Sansa has a command over Gretchen and Maddie and the servants. She knows their characteristics, she knows how to run the show, and more critically, she knows how to deal with Robin. Much as we all like hearing about the Winged Knight, Sansa is in, in negotiating mode as she haggles with her charge about how many promised stories it will actually take to get his spoiled self out of bed 
which is kind of a critical part of getting him out of the castle. She knows which demands to tiptoe around, which to promise, which to flat out deny. Robert keeps on with his, those demands, whether it's about Maddie scrubbing, or bread for breakfast, or whatever. Like we discussed in I's final chapter last week, and in Sansa's previously, the issue of Robin essentially being poisoned comes up again. Even Robert himself now knows he's having too much of a certain thing or is having something hidden in his milk. Much like Tommen earlier in the book, he's complaining that he is the important one, he's the one to be obeyed, but that no one listens. So Sansa goes on with her platitudes and her lies, full in the knowledge of what Maester Coleman is slipping him and full of the intent of just getting him up and out as we'll learn he'll soon be reunited with Maya Stone, but more on that later. Let's concentrate on the here and now. Robert insists he is not leaving. He doesn't like mules, it's too cold out, the eerie is impregnable. He doesn't choose to and he's the lord, so what he says goes. Sansa honestly displays the patience of a saint, as she tells us of the immediate need to leave before the weather gets worse, and we get some tension building as she worries what effect his sickness will have on the terrifying descent. It's absolutely reasonable he will not want to go anywhere near the heights, and he's not exactly physically robust anyway, so that's three reasons why this is super dangerous for him right from the off, before you get into his actual attitude. We spoke before about the connection of John Aaron and Robert both being poisoned, so it wouldn't be a surprise if he had a similar connection of Robert also falling to his death from a great height like his mother. Either way, Sansa keeps on with her positive spin and endless promises to get him to move. She is victorious in getting the boy out of bed, but not before he steals a kiss from her, which oddly sends her all the way back to the Blackwater, to that key scene we had of her and the Hound, a song and a kiss as she remembers it. Why she is choosing to relive that moment right here is, uh, it honestly escapes me. Let's treat it as a bubble from a former life, forcing its way up as she continues to smother Sansa with Elaine. Or it might be a narrative focus, seeing as we spoke about Sandor not too long ago in Brienne's recent chapter. Either way, she remains steadfast. It made no matter. That day was done, and so was Sansa. Hmm. Much as we might want her to think back to her true name and the events of that life, Sansa is resolute to remain as Elaine, and I've got to say, she is much better at this than Arya is so far. Sansa continues her authority over the others once she gets outside the chamber, ordering the maids and the squires about. Even when she is challenged by Giles Grafton, the squire, who likely looks down on being ordered about by a girl, a bastard girl at that, and the fact he has to do woman's work, as he called it, she is backed up by Maester Coleman and indirectly by Lofa Broom. The latter might be by mere orders, although I think not, but Coleman definitely recognises her skills and value in managing Robert, so it's great to see Sansa continue to grow in that way and enjoy this sense of command. Mr. Coleman again advises that Robert is having too much sweet sleep, so much so he doesn't want him to have any for another six months. So we know this situation must be pretty dire if he's going to those extremes. And Coleman is already having to refuse the demands for more cups. Specifically, he's really worried about him bleeding from the nose, from Robert bleeding from the nose. So can we expect sweet sleep to perhaps cause a brain hemorrhage in high amounts, maybe? Uh, I'm probably not the person to ask about that, to be fair. Wherever it actually is, it apparently does not leave the system and continues to corrupt, though Sansa annoyingly interrupts before we hear, fully hear of the effects. So the more and more he has, the worse it's going to be. We're all pretty convinced that Baelish is intentionally pumping it into him, even if we can't say why just yet. It's a shame Coleman is a bit too loyal and hasn't simply reduced the dosage under his oath to do the best for Robert's health, even if it goes against Littlefinger's orders. Perhaps that is the plan once he gets Robert down to the gates of the moon, but for now, he needs the sweet sleep to ward off seizures for the journey. If we all remember that journey all the way back from Catelyn's Game of Thrones chapters, there's really no forgetting it, and it doesn't sound any easier going down, so Coleman's original suggestion of Milk of the Poppy is replaced by yet more sweet sleep in order to get him down safely under Sansa's insistence. And I wonder if, one day, 
she's going to look back and realise her own part in this poor boy's poisoning. They leave it with Coleman having to take it up with Littlefinger about six months without sweet sleep, and I think we know how that conversation's going to go. They dare not let the full extent of Robert's frailty and cowardice become too widely known. That's good chapter sequencing there, very reminiscent of Duran and his gout. Coleman only wanted the best for his charge, Elaine knew, but what was best for Robert the boy and what was best for Lord Aaron were not always the same. Peter had said as much, and it was true. Maester Coleman cares only for the boy, though. Father and I have larger concerns. Yes, this gets real concerning to read. It's bad enough that she is starting to look at Robert as a commodity rather than a little boy, but also this father and I line. Larger concerns being more important than anything else is one thing, but just the moulding together of Sansa and Littlefinger, his indoctrination plan is really working to our dismay. Where is Littlefinger, by the way? Well, everyone else is being left at home to look after the baby. Sansa supplies the details here. Baelish has already hopped it and got on with his plans of wheedling himself into the Lord's Declarant. This time, he's attending the wedding of Lionel Corbray, Lynn's brother, a wedding he actually arranged himself. With the other Lord's Declarant declined to go, Peter is essentially getting a leg up on his competition. Especially important since Lord Belmore will be at the wedding, and he seems to be the latest to switch sides in Peter's favour. So we just know that step by step, he's going to infect and separate like we talked about in the previous chapter. Littlefinger has likely done this because he's a proactive guy, always 30 steps ahead, but it also means he doesn't have to deal with Sweet Robin when you try and move him down the mountain. Before we actually leave the castle, Sansa has a little roundup of her feelings on the Eyrie. He is as beautiful as reputed, perhaps even more so in the snow. He is the perfect place of protection and solitude from the outside world that has always been so cruel to Sansa. But she doesn't love it. Subconsciously, she brings up the reasons why, via her thinking of Marillion, the moon door her aunt fell through, and Peter Baelish himself. But really, it's because the place has no heart, no soul, quite unlike the home she originally came from. Besides, the more practical thing that has her bothered is that as much as she might not love the Eyrie, it does serve her as a protective bubble. It will mean my head if I am found, she reminded herself as she descended a flight of icy stone steps. I must be Elaine all the time, inside and out. So that's superb evidence for the wool that Baelish has pulled over her eyes. Well, to a degree, it is true people are looking for her. It's true it could mean her death if certain people found her, but not quite to the degree she believes here. Either way, as we've discussed many times before, it serves Littlefinger's purposes of keeping her close and unwilling to leave his protection. Now comes the actual leaving itself, as we start heading into the past with sightings of Maud and the famous bucket that leads up and down to the Eyrie, the one we once saw Catelyn take ever upward. There will be a lot of that nostalgia on this whole journey, especially as we re-meet Maya Stone, our long-gone favourite. We have to wait a little while to see her, but for now, Sansa thinks on Lothar Brun's apparent affection for the girl, while also finally giving some backstory on Lothar himself. Back in Brienne 4, we wondered if he had connection to the Bruins at Crackhall Point. It turns out he did, and it did not end well. As for his feelings on Maya, we have no word as of yet whether she returns the sentiment. After finally saying goodbye to her room of safety, to the place where she half rediscovered her starkness before Lysa and Peter ruined it and gave birth to Elaine, Sansa is finally ready to leave, and we finally say hello to Maya again, another bastard girl of a secret, one that Sansa now knows. After being fairly horrible to Maya, we finally get Robert in the bucket and down from the castle. Sansa is elected to join him for this sickening ride down, and even as she fends off memories of Lysa falling or Marillion ha- inhabiting the sky cells that they pass, she manages to play on Robert's ego to keep him calm, acting again as someone who needs comforting and protecting, which isn't 100% a lie. Now we really do get the old memories coming through, as we retrace Catelyn's steps, though in reverse order. Sansa made the same journey, although we weren't present for it. We get the same description of dizzying heights and explosions to the elements, which are much worse now than they were back then. 
To continue the focus on old times, this is where we get the, the bulk of the talk on Maya Stone. She seems to have kept her life consistent since we saw her last, when we when she helped Catelyn do this journey. I do like that Maya helps mother and daughter, though, even if she does it unknowingly. She still runs the path, she still loves her mules. We explore the relationship she has with Robert, which, while not great on Robert's end, is fairly solid. She's probably his second favourite after Sansa, really, mainly because she brings him gifts. But we also hear an update on the relationship that Maya hinted at way back with Catelyn. Unfortunately, that hasn't gone so well. Marshal Redfort recently got married. So it turns out Catelyn was right. The game does always win out. Perhaps she will turn to Brune after all. And who is it that Sansa has this particular discussion with? It's a brand new fan favourite in Miranda Royce, daughter of Littlefinger employee Nesta. She's along for the ride down the mountain too and quickly proves herself pretty unique in our reading. She's confident, she's very forward, she's fun-loving, she's cool and breezy, and definitely does love a bit of chit-chat, as Sansa finds out at length. Both Sansa and the reader can quickly tell that while Randa might joke and provide us with updates on the state of the various other castles involved in the war, she's also got a job to do and is clearly trying to get information out of Sansa, even if it's with a smile on her face. Peter Baelish warned as much. After proving herself also popular with Sweet Robin, Miranda gives us a trove of information to think about. Simon Templeton and Lady Wainwood also seem to have been won over to Littlefinger's side. Riverrun has yielded. Hello, chapter sequencing. Nice one there. But Dragonstone and Storm's End remain. Now this part is interesting, because we've been told Dragonstone has fallen. So is Miranda simply up to date on the Riverlands, but not Blackwater Bay? Or has Dragonstone not fallen at all, as Rain Waters claimed? Hmm. She knows more. There's a new Hive Septum. And more interestingly our new Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Some bastard son of Eddard Starks. Jon Snow, Sansa blurted out, surprised. In general, Sansa's skills are advanced enough to get around Randa's attempts to screw out the truth, and she's so worried about being discovered as not Elaine, she'd never risk anything, even with these weird comments about Littlefinger and his little... Well, you know. But this is the instance in which her defences don't work. It's a bit of an eye problem. Remembering that the new character you've taken on isn't supposed to care or know about Ned Stark's bastard. But some things are too close to the heart to ignore, so Sansa does stumble. But we all quite like that about her, really, especially when she has some nice thoughts about John when she used to mentally exclude him in the past. Oh, it'd be so sweet to see him once again. Randa doesn't fixate on the stumble, instead giving us our first real information on Harry the heir. For first-time readers, it's not really clear why we need to know he's been knighted or has a bastard. That'll come later. But we've read enough of Song of Ice and Fire by now to know George usually includes these things for a reason. Either way, it works so far as getting Sansa relaxed and gossiping, which is what Miranda will want for the future, possibly. This is also where we get the questions on Littlefinger and his attentions. Again, Sansa gives nothing away, but you have to wonder if Miranda is possibly hoping she could replace Elisa in the future. Hmm. Well, for you and me. Long ago, Catelyn had a real issue crossing a particularly tricky part of the stretch between Sky and Snow, the Waycastles, a stone bridge over a huge gorge. Maya Stone was the one who got her across, but now Sansa is the one to spurn Robert over the chasm, again acting as though she needs protecting to make him brave enough to get across. It's pretty masterful. What might have happened if he had fallen doesn't bear thinking about, but Maya and Sansa are too good a combination for that. While stopping at Stone, Maya does give a bit of heartbreak as she has memories of the father she never knew, the laughing man who would throw and catch her and seem to genuinely love her. It's an emotional blink of a paragraph and some good chapter sequencing, considering we so recently found out about Gendry again. Maya has apparently moved on, and so must we. With the snow coming down strong, we finally approach the gates of the moon, and Sansa is thinking it might not be so bad here. 
Randa wants her in bed to talk of secrets and whispers like Sansa used to do. There'll be music and dancing, the stuff that Sansa used to like. It'll be a bit like coming back to life after the quiet of the eerie. But before any of that can be experienced, Sansa gets a surprise of Littlefinger having beaten them to the castle and wanting to have a chat. Within, Sansa quickly heads to see Baelish, because unfortunately, no Sansa chapter is complete without this creep anymore, much to our chagrin, and finds him with three knights she does not know. Before we talk of them, because that is important, Sansa is made to kiss Littlefinger again. As we always do when this happens, let's look at the language. Dutifully is the word used. Just as before, she doesn't want to kiss this man, she does it because she feels she has to, she has a duty to, and however many times that happens, it's never going to be any less creepy. Now what about these knights? Sir Bryron, Sir Morgarth, good name, but we don't care about them, because the third is dun-dun-dun, Sir Shadrick the Mad Mouse. And again, thanks for making me say that name, George, Shadrick, Shad, yeah. And I also say, like I did last time, that Mighty Mouse is a much better name. Damon Stoudemire, mid-90s Toronto Raptors, he has Mighty Mouse. I think he should lend it to Sir, to Sir, to Sir Shadrick. I will keep that one in there for you, just so you've got a bit of a laugh at my tied tongue. Alright, I will take on anyone's claim that the first time they read this book, they were still thinking about or remembering Sir Shadrick from Brienne's early chapters. It is right out of the blue, and George really manages to get us with this one. We know this guy is dodgy. We know he intends to sell Sansa should he find her, and it's just damn weird to find him turning up after so long. It's another real cinematic moment from George, that like creepy reveal. You can almost hear the music as he turns around, and we're like, oh shit, he's here. At the same time, it's almost thrilling that Peter Baelish is not all-powerful. He's accepted someone into his company who will not do what he wants, and he has no idea, so far as we know. I mean, it might turn out this is all some kind of massive double bluff from him. That wouldn't be that big a surprise, but I don't think so. So there is a chink in his armour, and the possibility of all his plans coming crashing down is a good one, but not at the expense of our poor Sansa, of course. We don't want that. Plus, it really does get under our skin that after everything Brienne has been through, she's ultimately failed in her quest to find Sansa, whereas this guy has succeeded. It feels very unfair. For now, all that means nothing. Obviously, to Sansa, she has no reason to take any notice of Sir Shadrick, but we're already getting our haggles up, as if we don't have to do that enough with Peter, about the danger Sansa's in, and what that might mean for her soon, what might happen. The really ambitious first time, and might have even thought Shadrick would take her at the end of this book and begin a new adventure for her. Obviously not, but still a great unexpected gem, and definitely one that keeps us on the hook for this storyline going forward. Once it's them alone, Baelish decides he hasn't been nearly creepy enough this chapter, and redoubles his efforts. A dutiful kiss is not enough for this teen girl in his care, pretending to be his daughter, so now he comes, grabs her, and kisses her on the lips for a long time, I quote. <sighs> and he also says this, See that you do better next time. And... <laughs> So firstly, sickening. More and more sickening, if that were possible. But also, a slip-up. Peter can't resist temptation. Just a bit further past the line here, just a bit more there. On some level, he knows he has to control himself to keep his plan ticking, but that resilience is definitely slipping. He wants more and more of Sansa. And terrifying though it is, I don't think this trend is going to stop anytime soon. I'm sorry to have to say that, I really do not wish to, but that's truth. All we can do is hope that his giving in to temptation and straying from his strict path will eventually cost him all and allow Sansa to gain the upper hand. We can hope. With Sansa actually feeling guilty about her kissing not being good enough, yeah, that really lays heavy in our stomach, doesn't it? Baelish gives some updates on the world outside their snowy cocoon, focusing on Cersei's many, many, many failures. 
Anyone can realise how awful Cersei is, but to someone with Littlefinger's mind, it must be a straight-up comedy routine. Here we have the famous line of George basically addressing the five-year gap through Littlefinger as a mouthpiece, but he also focuses on the fact that chaos is best, and chaos is what we'll soon have, again, as we head into the War of the Three Queens. Now that's interesting to discuss. Who does he think the Three Queens are? You'd think Marjorie and Cersei are locks, okay, so is he planning to turn Sansa into the third? Definitely seems like it. Does he know about Ariane or the plot to crown the cellar? Who knows what he knows. Could he even possibly know about Daenerys? I'd be 99% sure that he does not, but still, he may be more right than he knows. The chapter closes with the reveal of the next great Peter plot. He offers a gift, and just to reaffirm that this is a child we are dealing with, she guesses everything from a new dress to lemon cakes before actually finding out it's a marriage contract, which I believe is a big part of why he's pushing this boundary with her in terms of kissing while he can. So we learn of another way before we really get into the, the nitty gritty of this marriage contract. We learn of another way Littlefinger has wormed his way into a house. He has taken on much of House Wainwood's debt and therefore now controls Anya as another Lord Declarant basically on his side, which allows him to move Harry as he wishes as well, especially towards Sansa. He launches into a long explanation of exactly how Harry is related to Robert, which is complicated enough on first read, although it's impressive that Littlefinger has the mind to keep track of such things, but all that really matters is the end result. Harry is Robert's heir, the only male heir of the Arons, and Sansa will supposedly marry him. He is not Lady Wingwood's heir. He is Robert's heir. If Robert were to die, Peter arched an eyebrow. When Robert dies. That is chilling, truly. This is a lot about experience and learning that Sansa figures out the next bit for herself, if Robert should die, like we mentioned. That's where this 13-year-old's mind instantly goes. She gets Littlefinger. But Peter Baelish does not say if, he says when. So those poison theories we've been having are all but confirmed. You can make the argument he is just saying he really believes Robert's illness will definitely claim him. But come on, this is Peter Baelish, I think we know. He's not leaving something like that to fate. He has been trying to kill Robert, a young child, in his protection. He wants that tragedy to occur. As if we don't have enough crimes to lay at his feet. From there, Baelish lays out his next master plan. One that might be even more impressive than Joffrey's killing in terms of just sheer scale and planning. We can hate him, but you really have to admire this aspect of his mind, the sheer ambition of it all. It's also smart. He knows he cannot ever be the person the veil will follow. No matter what he does, that will forever be true. So he needs some puppets in Harry and Sansa to control it for him. Of course, that's not how he packages it to her. To Sansa, it's a gift. It's everything she ever wanted. He's formed this perfect image in his mind of her unveiling at this wedding and earning the loyalty of the veil and then, apparently, using this new strength to finally return to Winterfell. Here's what he says. So those are your gifts from me, my sweet Sansa. Harry, the Eyrie, and Winterfell. That's worth another kiss now, don't you think? I forgot how rousing this ending really is. The mere idea that Sansa could actually have a route to finally go home and go home with an army. Even the tease of finally, finally having the Vale Lords in action is enough to get us going. But Sansa in power, Sansa going home. Until you think about it for a couple of seconds and the shine wears off. As great as that sounds, it will still be Littlefinger pulling the strings. So, even if he's being genuine here, if we don't know that for sure, it could be another white lie, it's obviously going to be of benefit to him in some way. Restoring the home of Eddard Stark is not his life's mission. Then there's the fact that Sansa must seduce Harry the heir, so we're pretty concerned about what that is going to involve exactly. We've already seen Sansa suffer through one wedding, that was pretty tough as it was, and then there's Shadrick and the other lords and Robert and all these things we just do not know about yet. And above it all, that eternal hope that Sansa will twist these skills she's gained in this book and make the situation turn it to her own advantage for once, 
that Peter Baelish finally overestimated. That's what we want to see. And what of this final line? This demand for another kiss, this idea that Sansa now owes something to Littlefinger, even more than she supposedly did before. That's the hallmark of any abuser, unfortunately, this, this idea of owing. It leaves an absolutely terrible taste in the mouth, far more powerful than any excitement about future plot points, for me anyway. The idea that we are leaving Sansa to suffer more kisses from this man, or possibly even more than kissing, uh, don't want to think about it, is, it's left ambiguous at this point. Thankfully, looking at the Wind's preview chapters, it doesn't seem like it's gone any further just yet, but still, it's absolutely repugnant to think about, and really adds to this tragic tint of what could be looked at as good, if not at least very interesting news, for Sansa's future. And what a shame it is, we'll have to wait so long to find out what it actually entails. And there you go, that is our longest chapter of the book. That is Sansa 3, or Elaine 2, whatever you want to call it. And that is our episode today. It is sure running long. I told you it would be a big one, and it certainly is. Do not envy me for the amount of editing I will now have to do. So very, very quickly then. We won't dawdle on this part. I'll say thank you again for our wonderful patrons, and for all of you for downloading, listening, and all of those good things. But more importantly, what is coming up next? I doubt I even need to tell you. I think you probably already know the final four chapters, but here we go anyway, because... Yes, this is the end. We will start with Brienne 8. So it's going to start tough, I'll tell you that now. Brienne 8 with the Brotherhood, with Lady Stoneheart, with Brienne basically getting no kind of, not even recognition, let alone reward for uh, everything she's been through and everything she's done. And it, well, it, I think you know how that ends. Then we'll move on to Cersei 10. Again, famous for everything that happens in the build-up, but most certainly for Cersei's downfall. The point we've all been waiting for. We move then to Jamie 7, which is kind of a quieter uh, chapter, quieter close, but no less important. We have the taking of River Run, the escape of the Blackfish. We re-meet Jane Westerling, the Queen of the North. We get all that set up for the, the Winterfell prologue that we have guessed about. And ultimately, Jamie turning his back on Cersei. You know, I'm waiting for that one. And then we end with Samwell 5. Sam 5, the arrival at Old Town, the meeting of Marwyn, and the re-meeting of Sorella, and Leo, and all these things, and, well, the final line, that great big connection to the prologue that we discussed way back when, if you remember, of Pate the Pig Boy. We're looking forward to it. Yes, we will finish A Feast for Crows next week. We will see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>